Robert Gowan, Mentors for Military, sitting here with my sidekick, Paul Martinez. Hey, everybody. We are sitting live at uh, 15 Perry Street and appreciate these guys allowing us to do the podcast taping here. And uh, we're sitting with Jeff Morris, who is joining us from Indianapolis, who uh, flew all the way here to sit down and talk about his book, which I can't wait to get into, Legion Rising. But let's first start off at the very beginning, and that is you happen to be from a very similar, at least geographical region from where I'm from. I grew up probably... I don't know, what would you say, about 45 minutes away, I think it is, uh, from uh, Destin, Florida. So tell us a little bit about that. What got you there at Destin? Yeah, so I was I was born in Alabama, and we moved down to Destin. I guess I was three, almost four. Don't really remember much of Alabama. But yeah, man, you know, when you grow up there, I think you and I were touching on it earlier, you don't realize how nice it is. You know, it doesn't register that, hey, there's a reason why everybody pays money to come vacation here. You know, this is this is home. But now I laugh. Like when I go back now, I'm the, you know, the grumpy old get off my lawn guy. Like, you know, I remember you could drive down Highway 98 and, you know, you could see the beach and now there's damn condos everywhere. But, uh, totally. Yep. And you remember Dustin used to be a sleepy little fishing village, oh, yeah. too. Even when I got stationed at Fort Benning in 1990, I remember um, y- you could leave out of the Destin Recreation Center, which was on the Bay side, mm-hmm. and get on 98. And somebody told us about a restaurant that had just opened up called Fud Puckers at the time frame. And so we got in the car and we're driving and we're driving. I'm like, where the hell is this damn thing? You know, and we keep driving and all of a sudden out in the, amongst all the woods and everything is this, you know, restaurant. And so we pull in there and we eat. Fast forward, you know, multiple years later, we didn't eat there again, but as the community began to grow from that time period, I think it was probably, I don't know, 10 years, about the time frame when they built the little overpass that um, cut through um, through the, oh, the, the backside. Mid- yeah, the Midway Bridge. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't know when that was. Was that around 2000 or so? Yeah, a little before that. We could not find Fud Puckers. So yeah. we'd leave off the Destin Recreation Center, same path, go through there. There's so much that had been built up. This, it was just that it was not woods anymore. Yep. It was just other shopping uh, plazas and centers and restaurants and stuff. Yeah, I mean, the I growth can, is crazy. I mean, I go back to, I guess we got there in 1978 or so, and literally remember there being one stoplight in town. Yes. And there was a, we, there was a McDonald's there. And when we got a Burger King, we thought we were a major highfalutin, as yeah, we used to yeah. say. And then hell, Taco Bell came in after that. <laughs> and, like, and it's just wild. And, but yeah, you're talking about that stretch out from Destin out towards San Destin now. Yeah. I mean, I remember that was one lane. No one ever went out that way. 30A, there was nothing there was on nothing, it. Nothing, nothing out there. And now, I mean, it is gridlock traffic. Uh, it's terrible. Yeah. I, I can't even stay in Destin. I can remember, um, as strange as this may sound to some of the listeners, it, uh, it was probably, I don't know, maybe 12, 13 years ago, our family was looking at taking a trip down to Destin, and as I started looking at the um, cost of lodging for seven days to stay in a place in Destin, I went back and I told him, I go, listen, guys, I've got free miles on Delta because I fly all the damn time, so why don't we use my miles? I can fly all of us, six of us, adults, round trip, first class to Hawaii, to the Big Island, Oahu, and then to the Big Island, and then back home. We can stay for 10 days for cheaper than going seven days to Destin. They were like, let's do it. Yeah. That's crazy. And it's, it is crazy. I mean, how they price that down there is ridiculous. And yet it gets more and more crowded every, every day. Yeah. <laughs> right? 
Oh, my God, yeah. So, I mean, so many uh, great memories, I'm sure, growing in, up in that area. But in reading your book, um, I, I found it kind of interesting because we both grew up in a community that was be, uh, very much military. Um, you've got Air Force. You've got Navy. You know, the Army is down there as well. And and yet one of the people I think you found as a role model was a, a SEAL, um, someone that you uh, – tell us a little bit about that. At least, yes. It was one of my buddies growing up. His dad had been a part of the first SEAL teams in Vietnam, and and again, you know, this is pre-internet. I mean, all you know is the, you know, the Charlie Sheen movie and uh, the Dick Marcinko books back then. You know, but everyone knew, you know, that Mr. Pete was a SEAL, and he never talked about it. uh, But he was just wild stories you'd hear about this guy, man. Like, you know, he was a lawyer at the time, but he had been a police officer before that. He had roamed the Middle East, you know, for a couple of years before that. He had been a SEAL before that. He was just this cool dude that we all wanted to be like Mr. Pete. So me and his buddy, or excuse me, me and his son, who's a good buddy of mine, we kind of had this bro pack of we were going to go off and, and be SEALs together and went to different colleges. We both played ball at different colleges. And, uh, you know, he unfortunately had some injuries and wasn't able to pursue that path. And uh, as fate would have it, I kind of had a similar experience with me, albeit a slightly different yeah, uh, but yeah, no, nah, it was just a cool guy to look up to. And then from him, he introduced me to some other really uh, cool people. You know, was, I felt cool when the book came back from the Pentagon, like one name had to be redacted because I didn't have his permission because I couldn't get in touch with him anymore. But he was a pretty big influence. He had been a, one of the original SEAL Team 6 guys and kind of took me under his wing, you know, as a young kid. So, wow. Yeah, it was pretty wild. You didn't grow up in... Well, I guess it's in that area down there. Let me let me first kind of tee it up. It can, it, it's if you get away from the beach and you get away from you know the touristy aspect of it, it it's a very rural and I would say middle class, lower middle class is more like it um, or lower community. And so you you grew up in a very you know rough childhood. Yeah, you know we lived in Destin, but you're absolutely right. People. I mean, heck, my wife now, the first time she went down there was shocked when she realized that, you know, 30 minutes from the beach, you know, I'm in the backwoods country. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize that. And, uh, but yeah, so while we lived in, you know, I kind of, I guess the way I equate it to people is, you know, you see all these nice, you know, restaurants and hotels and, you know, there's a lot of rich people that own those. Well, there's a lot of, you know, poor people who have to work at those things and do the menial jobs that a lot of people don't want to do. Uh, but yeah, that was, you know, again, as a kid, you don't realize, that that's not normal. That's just kind of how yeah. life is that, you know, mom has a, you know, my parents split when I was pretty early. We got down there, you know, my mom would have a day job, then come home and you know, single so, mother. Yeah. You know, sometimes it would, sometimes she'd be there to, you know, make dinner for us. Sometimes she would have to go to the second job and, you know, there we are six, seven, eight years old, making dinner for ourselves, fried bologna sandwiches and you know, the apartment security guard would come by and check on us to make sure that we got to bed on time while she cocktail waitress and, you know, then she'd come in some nights, fast forward a couple of years, had to pick up a third job and would come in and, you know, wake us up at one, two in the morning, throw us in the car, go deliver the, the Destin log two nights a week. And we'd roll the newspapers up in the back and, you know, hand them up to her. She would throw them out, to win, out the window. But yeah, I mean, that's just, that's what we knew, man. You know, to me, it was a regular childhood. I mean, I knew, you know, we didn't have some of the nice things that some of my friends had, uh, but, you know, it was a good childhood. Yeah. Now, th- Fast forward, though, as you end up getting into um, the age of when you started looking at the military service, you wanted to go be a SEAL because of the influence that those individuals had. Man, maybe the movie, too, but, you know. Oh, of course, yeah. 
It's a good movie. <laughs> hey, anyone who says otherwise is lying. Yeah. yeah. I know so many who actually have been on this show, and that was their influence. Yeah. It's yeah. wild. Yeah. Whether they end up going to the Army or not, that was their influence. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it was that was part of it, and there was always just sort of this... Uh, I always knew that, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I grew up, but I just knew I wanted more than what I had. Yeah. And a couple of different trains of thought. One was... Uh, you know, federal law enforcement. Another big influence was Silence of the Lambs. I saw mm. that movie. And that was an influence for you. It was because I just thought the whole FBI profiler thing was so cool. Oh, gotcha. And so I was like, all right, you know, what's the best way to get into federal law enforcement? And well, there's a military aspect, you know, they love hiring <laughs> veterans from what I was told back then, mm-hmm. uh, or law school. And, you know, the military from the movies, everything we've discussed already, you know, the influence is my buddy's dad. Uh, I was kind of naturally drawn to that, the challenge. Then I had this other side of me that was kind of being a little more pragmatic and like, well, if I go get a law degree, then, you know, I had this other backup plan. And you were playing sports at the time frame. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you were looking for the scholarship and the, the whole thing at that time frame. Yeah, it was kind of a weird deal. I played baseball my whole life. And then my right before my senior year of high school, a uh, friend of mine who had been on me for a couple of years, said, you should come out and play football, man. You know, you're fast. So I finally took his advice and could then pretty smart guy. He's a guy named Danny Werfel, who everyone's probably heard Get of. Get out of here. Won the Heisman Trophy, yeah. Danny's your buddy? Yeah, we don't talk much anymore. I mean, it's been a year. We check in once a year or so. But yeah, yeah. we were close friends growing up and, uh, you know, awesome guys. I tell people whenever it comes up that, you know, oftentimes you see people like that and you just you yeah. end up meeting them or you find out some story and they're like, oh, he's not quite as good of a guy yeah. as we thought he was. And Danny is everything that you see and hear and more. Yeah. He's just an, an incredible man. Now, Danny's father was Air Force. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And that's how he ended up there. He got there when we were in middle school. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I went out and, you know, when you got a future Heisman Trophy winner as your quarterback and we had a receiver who went on to... Uh, for a period of time, was Florida State's all-time leading receiver, a guy named E.G. Green. Yeah, I remember him as well. Yeah, so we had quite the team of the the 22 guys that started the state championship game. Uh, I think 18 played Division One or one 1A or 1AA is what, you know, at the time. Yeah. So, yeah, from that, I had some opportunities. Uh, so that's how I ended up at Samford and was able to go up there and play ball. And one of the reasons I picked Samford was they had a great law school there, Cumberland School of Law. Okay. So, there was always this, you know, military or law school, and I'm like, I'll figure it out when I'm in college which way I'm going to go. A lot of the people that come from that area are kind of, well, at least for me, it was much the same way, and I think 60% of my class ended up going into the military, so I, I, I guess I could safely assume that all of us probably thought the same thing. It's either you're going the college route or you're going into the military, and there really wasn't an in-between. I mean, there was a limited number of people, like I mentioned, that stayed there, but for the most part, you were, you were leaving some way out of there. Mm-hmm. Troy, which is where I ended up graduating, is where a lot of people end up going, or Samford. And it's funny because, you know, the panhandle is right in lower Alabama, you know, right there. As a matter of fact, I joke on the podcast on occasion that the Alabama got kind of the raw end of the deal because the way the state is not able to get access except for around Gulf Shores and Mobile, you know, to the beach. Um, they lost some prime real estate, you yeah. know, in that area. But some people end up uh, going to those smaller Alabama schools because they're they're close enough nearby. And that was the case for you, for Sanford. Yeah, it was, you know, f- four hours from home, so close enough, yeah. but not so far away. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, the football aspect and the law school aspect, that's what really drew me there. And ultimately, as you read, I sat down to take the LSAT, and I had done all the practice tests, and by all accounts, and I get it, their practice, I had done pretty well on them and 
I literally just remember I had to drive over to Tallahassee for it. And I remember sitting in the room and just like at, at that moment right there, I'm like, I don't want to do this. If I don't go try the other deal, I can always come back and try this later. But if I don't try this now, I'll always wonder what if. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up doing terrible on the LSAT. I was completely unmotivated and like got my score. I was like, well, even if I wanted to go, that's probably, <laughs> <laughs> you know, end up at some uh, online law school with that score. But, uh, but yeah, but I was, you know, and then life happened and I wasn't able to pursue the military dream. So what happened next? Graduated, uh, was very naive, not having come from a military family. I, and this is going to sound dumb, but I, I, I thought I'd walk into the Navy recruiter's office, say, hey, I'm a guy, I played college football, I'm in shape, I made good grades, I want to be a Navy SEAL officer. You're welcome, you know, type deal. <laughs> and instead, you know, they looked at me and basically are like, buddy, you got no chance in the world. And uh, I'm like, yeah, I do. And they're like, well, okay, we'll, we'll try it out. So they were pretty upfront with me that, you know, this, again, pre 9-11, so this was late 90s. And they're like, you know, they probably take maybe, you know, based off the year, eight to 12 SEAL officer slots. Uh, I, I may be making those numbers up, but I just remember it was a real low number. And he said the majority of those are going to come from guys from the academy and the others are going to be guys who are enlisted who already have their trident and are and are going the officer route so you know that pretty much makes you like a you know a one in a million i.e it's not going to happen chance but i was 22 10 foot and bulletproof so <laughs> i'm going to try it out and they're like buddy just enlist just uh you know, just go in if, if you know you look like you're in good shape just do it then go to the officer route later and and again in hindsight uh, I could say that I should have done that, uh, but if I would have done that, then these other things, you know, that happened later on down the road wouldn't have. Uh, but again, it was it was ignorance on my part. I didn't understand that. I thought since I had a degree that I had to go. I could only be an officer. Yeah. Because uh, again, I had no one in my life to teach me this stuff, and the internet. You know, and it's not like <laughs> it is. It was coming yeah. around. So it sounds, you know, silly, but uh, that was it. So yeah, I tried it. You know, did well and. You know, on the fitness test and all my scores, had some great recommendation letters. But wait, let's back up. Oh, because, here we go. <laughs> here we go. I, I want to get into, you know, you're sitting there, and when I was reading this book, I was, um, I don't know, I could visualize a lot of this having grown up in the same area, but you're going out to try to kill yourself before you go and take the exam, the physical exam. Your idea was, and the the reason why I want to cover this is because often we get asked, what is it going to take to get through selection? How should I prepare physically? You know, all these different questions that get asked. And the thing is, is just, you know, in a lot of cases, just show up. Mm -hmm. Just be yourself. Be real. So you didn't have all of that, you know, podcast and everything that you could listen to. But you had this idea that I better be in the best damn shape. And I know that SEALs, you know, they're in the water. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be out in the water. I've seen, you know, the movies and the, and the photos and everything of having to, to lay in the, uh, the, the, with the water rushing over you in the, the uh, um, sand and everything. Yeah, and the whole, so tell, because when I was reading this, I was busting out laughing, visualizing you going through this. So you, you got to share it. Because you killed yourself. So, thank you for bringing this up, by the way. It's everybody's, like, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot of really humbling feedback from the book, but I've gotten more feedback about this part of the book. Really? Oh, yeah, just, I mean. Well, I was on the beach when I was reading yeah, it, too, yeah. by the way. We just talked about. Yeah, so, I mean, and again, some of this is, and you got to understand how I was wired. I mean, coming from the situation that I came from, uh, 
nothing ever came easy for me. And a lot of people, you know, even, you know, when I got off to Sanford, everybody, oh, you grew up in Destin, Florida, you know, yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> right. you know, and then playing football and I was a defensive back and, you know, you can write a pretty short book on white defensive backs <laughs> <laughs> out there. And so there was always just like, I had to work harder and earn respect and credibility. Uh, and again, what life experience had taught me, use the way to, the hard way was always ended up being the right way for yeah. me. And so I had read somewhere uh, that, you know, outside of the cold water, you know, out of Coronado at Bud's that, you know, that's miserable, the lack of sleep, being cold and wet all the time. But one of the things that really gets people is you're in the water, you're in the sand, you're in the water, you're in the sand, and you just get chafed unbelievably bad. And having been a baseball player growing up, you know, I, mean, I still got calluses on the inside of my arms from, you know, head first slides. And it's everybody always talked about, well, you know, you do it enough, you'll get enough strawberries, you'll build up a callus and it won't hurt anymore after that. So in dumb 22 year old Jeff's mind, like, well, the same thing should apply to my inner thighs. This is and, amazing. Okay. Yeah. This is my favorite new story. <laughs> <laughs> so man, it gets better. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, uh, there's a couple of guys, heck you may have had some of them on there. Uh, I, we can talk about off air later, but former CEO, I shared this with him one day and he like stopped everything, went and got every former <laughs> SEAL ranger that worked for him at the security company. He's like, you guys got to get in here and hear this. <laughs> you hear this. Yeah. <laughs> so no, so I would go out swimming in the Gulf and, uh, I'd usually try to go out, you know, in the winter months when it was cooler out there to try to adjust to the cold water. And then I would go back on the beach and I would just pick up a couple of handfuls of, you know, white sand and just throw it down my pants and rub it all on my inner thighs. And I would go run a couple of miles and uh, then get back in the water, then do it wow. again. And I would come home and just, I mean, just all kind of tore up, you know, put some Neosporin on it, yeah. kind of scab up for a few days and get back out and do it again. So... That's amazing. I never got the callus, first of all. But <laughs> that was my next question. Did it work? <laughs> no. Uh, and so where this all kind of came to a head is when I took my SEAL fitness test, my buddy's dad worked it out to where I got to go do it with a SEAL liaison out at Herbal Field, and I didn't have to go to a Navy base and do it with, you know, 300 other dudes. So this guy shows up, man, and, I mean, he is straight cast from a movie. I mean, rolls in in his CJ7G, no doors on it, uh, you know, short brown shorts, black shirt, sweet stash, you know, probably 6'3", six, 6'4", six, just looks the part, and I'm scared to listen. So he just walks up and is like, all right, son, you ready to get started? I'm like, yes, sir. He's like, don't call me sir. I work for a living. and gives me that mm -hmm. whole deal. So I'm already nervous. So he tells me the standards. That's really all we talk. So I go out, do the test. I kill it. I mean, I'd been training so hard. And we get done, and uh, He's like, all right, buddy. And he kind of opens up. He's like, obviously, you're, you're in good shape, you know, but being in good shape is only half of what it, you know, what else are you doing to prepare yourself mentally for buds if and when you get a chance to be there? I'm like, this is my moment. You know, someone who's <laughs> going to appreciate the misery that I have put myself through, who this will resonate. I mean, you know, everybody calls me an idiot, all my friends and my parents. Uh, so I'm like, well, you know, actually, chief, you know, I, I hear that chafing is a big thing. And, you know, so here's what I've been doing. And... I get to the point where I'm like, so I throw <laughs> sand down my pants and rub it. And then I start to, and he just goes, just like throws his hand up. I mean, like right here in front of my face and goes, stop. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> so, and so at this point I'm nervous. So I'm like, well, I, I, uh, I put sand down my pants so I can build up. And he's just stopped. He goes, buddy, buddy, son, 
that is the dumbest fucking thing <laughs> I have ever heard of in my life. <laughs> that is like practicing getting kicked in the nuts. <laughs> it's going to suck every single time. So let me give you a little bit of advice, buddy. Uh, if it doesn't make sense, don't do it. And uh, so completely deflated, you know, I walk away. But, you know, I, I laugh and it's, I mean, I, trust me, no one makes fun of themselves more <laughs> than, than I do about that. But I tell you, man, that life lesson uh, stayed with me, uh, not just, you know, in training and the business world, but I can't tell you how many times, you know, we'd be in a situation in Baghdad down the road and you would kind of have that tactical pause to kind of assess the situation of what's going on. And one of the first questions that always went through my mind was, does this make sense mm -hmm. of what we're about to do? So uh, not only did he humiliate me, uh, but <laughs> taught me a hell of a life lesson. And you didn't make it. Didn't make it. They didn't pick me. They called me, said, uh, hey, just like we said, you didn't make it this year. So I'm like, all right, I'll try it again next year. And then that's when, you know, throughout this process, I had been having some shoulder problems. And uh, so ended up finally went and got it looked at. And the doctor went in, scoped, talked to the Navy recruiters. They're like, yeah, an arthroscopic surgery, you know, heal up from that. You'll still have a chance. Albeit probably not going to happen in Budge. You should really try something else. But I'm like, no, I'm going to keep doing it. And so he went in, scoped it. And that was in April of uh, 2000. And we got done. He's like, man, it was a lot worse. When I got in there, I could see everything. You got a lot of degeneration in your AC joint. So uh, let's try this out. But I have a feeling we're going to have to go in and do something bigger. And sure enough, they did. So they went back in and had to do reconstructive surgery a few months later. And uh, yeah, not only the Navy. So at that point, I went next door and talked to the Marines and talked to the Army. And basically, everybody said, you know, with an injury like that, you don't have a chance in the military. So uh, good luck in life. Mm. Wait, how, how, did, how did you take that? I mean, after the point of like building up to where you want to be on SEALs to now you can't even get in. You know, initially it was uh, it was pretty crushing, as you can imagine. Uh, that, that was a life plan. It was also right about the time that I met my, what is now my ex-wife. And so, you know, like any new blossoming relationship, everything was great. So I kind of looked at that as, you know, maybe this was a sign that maybe that's, uh, I was supposed to go on a different path. And so uh, left Florida, moved out to the Dallas-Fort Worth area with her, began a career, got promoted quick. Uh, so, you know, there was still that side of me that, you know, man, could I have done it? Uh, I'm always going to wonder what if type deal. But at least at that period in life, I felt like these other things had come into play that, you know, kind of maybe meant that I was supposed to be going in a different direction. Mm -hmm. And you started making the best out of that. I mean, uh, I think you eventually embraced that. And um, like you said, you started thriving. Is it around this time frame, too, that your son was born? No, no, that was several years later. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't recall the timeline of it. So... 9-11 happens, and how did you feel during that time frame, you know, with, with everything that was going on and the situation that you were in? Well, it was, it was pretty wild. So about a month before, it was early August of 2001, uh, the job I was at, I had to go fill in at a different store, and there was another guy there working with me that day who had come from a different store and very similar backgrounds, had both wanted to be in the military. Uh, he wanted to be a ranger. Uh, that was his big deal. And I wanted to be a SEAL. Uh, you know, he had his reasons why it didn't work out. I had mine. And then he asked me, he's like, have you read Black Hawk Down? And I'm like, no, I've heard about it, but I haven't read it. He's like, oh, dude, you got to get it. So on the way home from work that day, I picked it up, started reading it a week or two later. 
finished it and like just reading that man just kind of like lit the match again and you know i was a year removed from surgery at this point and just that things were going so well with work but i still like in the back of my mind it was that you know i will always wonder what if mm-hmm. and so I, I went to chrissy one night and just said you know you're gonna kill me we're finally now and i just, man i got myself so crazy in debt uh i'm like we're finally making some money you can dig out of this hole that i got us in but I kind of wanted to try the military one more time. Would you support that? And she had come from a military family, Air Force, and she said, yeah, you know, absolutely. But, you know, we're in a pretty good spot. Let's don't make any rash decisions. Let's uh, let's think about it. And not to be overdramatic, but that conversation took place on a Tuesday, and the next Tuesday was September 11th. And then two days after that, I was in the recruiter's office. Yeah. So how did that conversation go this time around after having the second surgery? Um, knowing that you had to face the fear there of going down to the MEPS. You know, actually, that was pretty, I was nervous about it. Yeah. And so here's, here's something funny. So the Navy, uh, well, back up, Destin, Florida. Mm-hmm. You brought it up, little fishing village. Yep. You know, the city slogan is Destin, Florida, world's luckiest seafood fishing village. And I am allergic to all seafood, fish and shellfish. The Navy had no issue with that, but I couldn't get in because of my shoulder. So the army, like, they clear my shoulder right off the bat. I get down to MEPS, then they medically disqualify me for the seafood allergy. Get out of here. <laughs> so okay. define irony, you know, the Navy water. Yeah, we got no problem with this. The army land, hey, you're allergic to seafood. We can't take you. So yeah, so that's what, uh, gosh, it was six months. Of, I had to go and, and get some waivers. And, and it wasn't an anaphylactic or anything reaction. Yeah. Uh, but uh anyways i guess it was probably it took me finding an allergist who had been in the army who i guess knew how to write this stuff up because the first couple of doctor stuff i sent in they wouldn't take but uh but yeah he took care of that for me now did you want to go into special operations at that time frame uh since you had wanted to go the seal route i'm sure everybody's listening going okay well then yeah he yeah. you know he just read black hawk down you know he's always wanted to be a seal to me, it can't, again, you know, a couple more years under my belt, uh, a little bit more wisdom, and uh, it came down to a couple of things. I wanted to go the, you know, the special ops route. Uh, I now realize that the SEAL route was probably not the best way. Looking at, the, you know, what was going on in Afghanistan, and again, we weren't even in Iraq at this point, uh, kind of thought, you know, something probably more land-related, you know, so it really came down to the Marines or Army, mm-hmm. and the Army was the only one that I could get combat arms guaranteed. So mm-hmm. I knew and going in as an officer, usually you don't get your branch until you're halfway, mm-hmm. at least the route that I took through OCS. You don't find out your branch. You put your wish list, not until uh, halfway through OCS, and it's kind of needs of the Army. I had a heck of a recruiter, which unfortunately a lot of people can't say. There is a small provision that you could get one of the three combat arms branches if you did X, Y, and Z beforehand, and he did it. Uh, he took care of it. So got a letter from infantry branch there at Benning. Uh, Benning. So it was part of my packet when I went to. Did he didn't try to talk you going into enlisted? I can't tell you how many guys I tried to convince go enlisted, even if they had a four-year degree, because it was a different credit. You didn't get the yeah. same credit, you know, if you end up yeah, going to no, no, an officer. No, he didn't. He, you know, it came up. He, one of the things that he said, uh, he said, one of the things I like about you is you're a little bit older. Now, again, Keep in mind, I was 28 years old about to go in mm-hmm. to basic training. So I think just having a little bit of life experience, uh, he felt would maybe set me up for success a little bit better. Yeah. So you go off to OCS, you end up completing that. Then you go off to uh, the basic course. Yeah. So uh, basic training, uh, then OCS, and then uh, had a break before the infantry officer basic course. I so did airborne then, 
then IOBC uh, and finished that up in September of 2000. Shoulder bother you in uh, airborne school or anything with the... No, 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 I didn't have any issues there. Uh, actually, I take, I take that back. That shoulder didn't. Uh, we had a pretty hard, pretty windy. Our last jump was pretty windy. A lot of guys got hurt that day and ended up hurting the other shoulder, which fast forward six, eight years down the road, had surgery on that one, mm. probably because of a fall that day. But, uh, but yeah, no no physical issues. It uh, wasn't until I went off to ranger school and you got a story or you got a tab, and I got my story from hurting my knee there. Hurting your knee. Tell us about it. Land nav. So insert officer joke here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I... Uh, you know, it was probably the never, I laugh. So like in IOBC, even in OCS, like I would go out and like, I was a drifter when I, I just was out, and especially at night. So it was either, you know, get three of eight points or get eight of eight in two hours. Like there was, you know, it was one extreme to the other. But yeah, no, this was literally, it was uh first night of land nav or ranger school, walking to my very first point and just pitch black and step on a log or something wrong and felt the knee buckle and, uh, you know, just got it out, limped through it, and just in a, a lot of pain. And you know, needless to say, you know, failed that night. I just couldn't get around that good. And so they were like, you know, all right, you know, we can see you're gimping around pretty good, but can you get through it? You need to drop. And it's the whole, you know, are you injured or are you hurt type deal? And I'm like, no, I think I can get through it. So I did. I mean, I got the two-mile buddy run done the next couple of days, the water stuff, and then it came down for the, the retake of land nav, and the next day was the road march. And I just went out there and, I mean, I tried, but it was, it, it reached a point that I'm like, I'm, I may be doing something worse by staying out here. Uh, so, yeah, so instead of, uh, it was funny, one of the RIs, they're not supposed to talk to you. Uh, he came out and just basically said, you know, he saw me limping around and give the guy credit. He said, uh, he's like, you think you can make it? And I was like, well, I think so. I can try. He's like, don't look like, you you know, looking at you, I don't think you got much of a shot right now, and there's no way you're going to make the road march tomorrow. He said, if you pass this and somehow make it to the road march, you're going to get recycled and going to have to go get fixed. Then you're stuck out here with us. He's like, if you fail today, he's like, then you get to go back to the IOBC, you get to go back, stay a little bit nicer quarters, probably, have, you know, not that you won't get good medical care out here, just life may be a little better. If you really did something wrong, he's like, if I were you, I'd rather be there than stuck out here rehabbing. So, uh, so yeah, that's what I, that's what I did. And, and you never got a chance to go back though. I didn't. I always thought I would. You know, at that point, is there a regret or a thing that pops in your head occasionally about that? Yeah, the thing that you know, a, it's you never want to be that guy. I mean, there is the uh, again, you got a story, you got a tab, and I hate being on that side of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I always, I, I own the shit out of that. You won't hear me come up with with one excuse. You know, I thought go off, do my PL time, come back, get a shot to go back. I'll knock it out then, and then at that point. Uh, you know, the, the end goal had always been to go into SF, you know, so, but come back to Ranger School, then go to selection. And uh, yeah, so I ended up had surgery that happened in October when I got hurt. Uh, I guess it was early November, had surgery in January. And I was hoping to get another shot at Ranger School then. But at that point, the way it was at uh, IOBC headquarters, if you had orders to a unit that was deploying in the next 12 months, you were going. There was no retry at Ranger School. So the fact that I was going to Hood to Cav, you know, they were set to deploy there that spring. So they were like, nope, no go. So rehab as soon as your knees, you know, you get the, you know, blessed off on, then you're off to Hood. How so, was it arriving at Hood? 
everybody as an entry on, you know, looking at you. Well, I got there. The unit was pretty much gone already. So Oh, they were already uh, forward. Okay, I yeah. didn't, I couldn't remember. Yeah, uh, yeah, so they had, for the most part, they had already uh, deployed. And so just in process with all the other newbies. Yeah. Uh, and then three weeks later, it was on a plane to Iraq. New officer arriving at a unit, um, especially in combat arms. Again, you've either got a tab or a story, and you're you're arriving over there in a combat situation. Um, how did the unit when you walked in? How did they accept you? How'd... They were great. You know, I mean, you're you're the FNG. There's no doubt. Yeah. And I didn't help that being the FNG and the dumb new officer. I walked into an air conditioning vent one day. This. E5, awesome guy, was showing me around, giving me, I mean, literally like giving me a tour of the FOB. And I kind of see it out of the corner of my eye, one of the, you know, the window units, and I duck down, but I duck down too late. And it's like day two on the FOB, and I <laughs> hit my head on it and gash my head open, have to go in and get stitches. So not only am I the, <laughs> nice. the new, you know, the, the, the new lieutenant without a tab, I'm now the new lieutenant without a tab who walked into an air conditioning unit and kind of <laughs> busted his head open. But no, everybody was great, man. They, Kind of early on, they're like, hey, we're going to send you over. You're probably going to take over, you know, Seclatoon, Charlie Company, 1-9. We want you to go and shadow these guys, start spending time with them. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, a lot of them were honest. You know, like, hey, I mean, I, I, the first question out of the mouth, they introduced me, and he was just like, where's your tap, sir? One of the E6s. <laughs> uh, yeah, fair enough. Uh, you know, again, I owned it with him. Yeah. And but yeah, it, they were great guys, and, you know, I just shadowed them on patrols. I worked in the S2 shop at night typing reports up but uh yeah the unit was was great you know you kind of had that initial you know and, and it, also too at this point Haifa Street was really starting to ramp up uh there'd been plenty of activity before but like early summer when I was getting there was when uh the, the contact was increasing significantly so I think the guys had more important things to worry about than to make fun of the new officer it was more so if this guy is going to be taken over for us, let's make sure we train his ass up right. Yeah. So, yeah. so you had some good NCOs then. Yeah, who I ended up not taking over that platoon, ironically. Mm -hmm. uh, ended up getting sent down to Alpha Company 1-9, who had been detached to... Uh, so Charlie Company was up at Bob Head. You were the XO for Charlie Company? When we came back. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so I went down to Alpha Company, who was living in the international zone. Charlie Company was up at Muthana Airfield, which is right off Haifa Street. It was Fob Headhunter, and they changed the name in the interest of hearts and minds to Fob Independence. Uh, but yeah, so it, that was kind of deflating because up there was where all the action was at. And then Alpha Company, I hadn't met any of these guys, first of all. And then... How bummed were you about that, though, that you, you know... Oh, you sucked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sucked. And uh, the... There's just a lot of things. Uh, you know, the, the, the company commander at the time down there, I, what I didn't know too is that he was getting ready, like it was one of those guys that, and again, I didn't know the guy, I'm basing off what I've heard, but like he wasn't a very popular guy around there. And so yeah, you know, in hindsight again, you know, it's, you know, life a lot of times is what you make of it. And, uh, but also just the circumstance you're thrown into. And so in a way, the situation couldn't have played out any better. So I went down to Alpha Company, Little did I know, right as I'm taking over, they're getting a new company commander who was awesome uh, and learned a ton from that guy, a good friend of mine to this day. And what else was unique is, so we spent a month patrolling the real slow area south of the international zone down around Baghdad University. And the fact that I had spent the month and a half prior to that out on Haifa Street, you know, even though I wasn't in charge or anything or, or leading, leading men, the fact that I'd been up there kind of those other guys, all they heard about was so, to me, it's like, wow, the new LT, he's been on Haifa Street. And so 
fast forward a month, we get the call to go up and start assisting Charlie Company. You know, I was the one guy who had actually been on that road and kind of knew what the terrain looked like and, you know, what the enemy TTPs were and such. Uh, so, yeah, and at the end, it all came about full circle. And we worked with Charlie Company every day, a lot of joint missions. Like you said, I ended up being the XO and eventually took over that company. But there, when you started, uh, this was the time period when you started doing a lot of backup, like you said, for the original unit that you were a part of. There was some pretty heavy stuff that went down. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, like I said, you know, when, when people think back to, you know, 2004, when the insurgency really kind of kicking into high gear, you know, everyone thinks about uh, Fallujah, of course, and then Sadr City, the big uprising in April of 2004, uh, was in Najaf down in spring as well, down south of Baghdad. You know, Haifa Street was just the, there was never one huge, you know, one, one to two week campaign, if you want to call it that, there. It was just steady. And then, you know, the Fallujah, I guess, call it invasion, we went in in November <clears throat> of 04. We had kind of announced that that summer, hey, we're going to go in and clean this place out with all these reinforcements. So uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq uh, kind of shifted a lot of their presence from Fallujah. And I'm not anyway saying they didn't keep one out there, uh, but they set up a heavy presence on Haifa Street. And so, yeah, it was just constant all the time. And sort of the, the way it went is they would pay a lot of the local... Uh, populous young kids, you know, I'm talking eight, nine-year-old kids, you know, to throw grenades at us. And then the, you know, the, the Al-Qaeda fighters, they would, you know, every two to three weeks do a coordinated attack or, or ambush on us. And so it was kind of the day-to-day harassing stuff. Then with the every two to three week, huge, sustained five, six-hour firefight. Probably the biggest and the one to probably talk about the most in the book was uh, September 12th when the Bradley was blown up and then yeah. 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 Do you want to get into that or? Yeah. Yeah. That was a. Because that, that was a mission, wasn't it, where there was um, some soft guys? Mm-hmm. So what we would see is we would go out and do our patrols. And again, we're mechanized infantry. You can hear us from, you know, yeah. two damn miles away. We're not sneaking up on anybody. Yeah. yeah. And so we would go off and do our missions. And when we would go in, they would hide and Again, for the most part, outside of the big attacks. And then when we would leave, uh, we would get intel, and we had our big J-Lens you know, camera up at the FOB, and we would see them come out in the streets, all the Al-Qaeda fighters with their AKs and RPGs, like, oh, look at us, you know, we ran off the mighty Americans. And so we had this idea, somebody came up with it, of, and then we started seeing more soft presence come out and do submissions based off uh, you know, just intel they were getting of you know, HVTs in the area. So we were talking to these guys and developed this idea of, well, let's go in and let's, you know, go in two companies and, you know, 200, 250 dudes, occupy multiple buildings and then leave. But when we leave, let's leave back for SEAL snipers with the nine-man infantry squad to, to guard them. And the first time we did it, it worked like a freaking champ, man. These guys came out right down Haifa Street and just started, and I wasn't on this one. I wasn't part of the Stay Behind crew. We just picked them off, man, just one by one. Uh, I think they said they got like 11 guys that day. You know, this worked. Well, this is the Army. Let's do it again. <laughs> Let's mm-hmm. do it again and do it again. And so, <laughs> you know, you got to give the enemy credit sometimes. They eventually got wise to what we were doing. And this particular one, again, just time and circumstance, man, of... This was going to be the biggest one. We were going to go occupy a building we hadn't done yet. It was the tallest buildings. Uh, they're like, well, they won't think to look there. And 
so I think we had, I think it was nine SEALs, and then we had a nine-man squad from the uh, battalion scout platoon who was going to stay back with them. And my alpha company, our job was to get them in in the morning. And so we, third platoon was going to run, they, uh, they were in the lead. They went up, occupied to Little Square, big, huge intersection right there on Haifa Street, and I uh, forget the crossroad. Uh, but they occupied that for security. I was first platoon. We had all the SEALs with us, and then we also had all our backpacks. And uh, we had all the SEALs. We had some of them with us. But we were carrying all their extra food and water. So it was these 17-story buildings that, you know, we got to throw in our... only time I ever used my rucksack in actual, you know, playing Army was carrying a bunch of damn water up 17 For flights. For SEALs. Yeah. 17 damn flights it. of stairs. Yeah, assholes. <laughs> uh, glad, I, glad it didn't work out. No, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, And then 2nd Platoon was reared the intersection behind us. And so we dropped them off, and this is probably 4.30 in the morning. And it was supposed to be a 48-hour operation. The other ones were usually like 12-hour operations. This was going to be, let's lay low, let's up the criteria for engagement. And so we leave, and when we left, we came under pretty heavy fire. Uh, several RPGs shot at us, which was really unusual that early in the morning, at least on Hypa, you know, mm. without any night vision capabilities. They rarely ever outside of, you know, chucking a grenade over a wall. They didn't attack us like that. So we kind of knew something was up. And as we're rolling into the FOB, we're told, stop, uh, stay there at the gate, because we were at the QRF, of course, to go back and get them. And they said, uh, you know, don't even come back to the base. Stay at the gate. Something's going down. We'll let you know quick. And then it was go, go, go. And as it turns out, and and you find all this stuff in hindsight. So Al-Qaeda in Iraq was going to film a propaganda video that day and add, you know, 50-plus dudes. And right after we left, these guys were up there. And, like, the engagement criteria, I think, had usually been five. I, they may have upped it for this mission. I don't know. But, like, literally, I mean, I got a video. And, I mean, it's probably 100 guys just come rolling out of this mosque, you know, just, you know, file, you know, each side of Hyper Street, walking down and... uh like, you know, what do we do? And they're like, well, if you get some of them together, open up. So they did, and it didn't take long for them to figure out where these guys were. So we get the call, go back in and get them. Uh, or go ahead, I'm sorry. No, 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 you're uh, good. Yeah. So we get the call to go back in and get them, and, you know, we take the same route in, same approach, third platoon occupying Talil Square, which was right by that mosque. And, you know, we're going to get there, secure the front of the building, help get everybody out, second platoon, guard the intersection behind us. And... We pulled up, and I, I've never seen anything like it. Uh, not to that point, and even after that, I never experienced any kind of combat. Like It was like the 4th of July. Like How many RPGs were shot at 3rd Platoon from different directions when they hit Talil Square? It's like the enemy had every corner occupied, high ground, low ground, and then we got out. They weren't dropping their dismounts at that point. All the guys were in the back. It was just the vehicles, and then we pulled up. And then that's when we started getting guys on the ground. So then all the attention shifted to us. And uh, so usually, you know, I would like hop out of the top hatch and go join the guys on the ground. But there was so much going on that just uh, told the guys to, you know, hey, I'll meet you there when I can. And eventually the situation calmed down. I was able to get down and, and go meet the men on the ground. And, you know, so at this point, there's just... It's just crazy. This is a pretty big area we're covering, too, on Haifa Street. But a lot of the attention is focused on us because, A, you got Talil Square, you got Haifa Street, the building we were in, and right behind it was the shanty town, just the mud huts. And so, I mean, they're chucking grenades over that. You got people across the street shooting at us. And, you know, we're on the ground floor of this building in the, the breezeway, kind of the 
OP just got pillars to take cover behind. And the building next to us had, it was a five-story building, I think, maybe six. Uh, the enemy had gotten in there, so it kind of had the high ground, and they're just shooting down on us. So, I mean, we're really just in a position of, like, let's hold the ground and, like, kind of need other people to help out. The SEALs came down. They were awesome. They were like, hey, where do you need us? You know, you're kind of the command and control guy here. You're talking, we don't know the whole situation, what's going on. Just tell us where to go and let us do our thing. So started putting them on higher floors. And uh, anyhow, so while all this is going on, uh, the loudest freaking explosion ever experienced in my life threw me up against the wall. Uh, a V-bit had got in, in our, uh, it got through second platoon and came up and our, one of our command vehicles, our Exos Bradley, was parked in the middle, probably, I don't know, 50, 100 yards from where we were at and uh, just slammed into it. And I mean, just amazing, just the power of that. I mean, to me, that, that far away and to throw me, you know, that shattered all the glass everywhere. So that happened and then we, uh, that was a whole separate thing. The vehicle caught on fire and there were guys in there. So some guys from second platoon ran out and ended up pulling the guys uh, out of there. Two guys got silver stars. Uh, they were both put in for distinguished service crosses for jumping on the burning vehicle and, and pulling them out. So while that's going on, we're still getting engaged. These guys from behind the building. So we start chucking grenades at them to try to get behind it. And uh, one of the guys, one of the scout, uh, that squad that had been left behind with the SEALs, it was actually my grenade. Uh, I gave it to him, he turned to throw it, he didn't step out far enough and it hit the inner lip of the breezeway and rolled back towards us. And everybody's facing out, you know, towards the street. And so he sees it, he's turning running. I look over and I see the grenade rolling back and it was rolling like, kind of right towards two of my guys who were behind one barrier. And so I ran over and grabbed them and, you know, lucky or good, you know, just always say just dumb blind luck, just, Kind of just took a chance, so I grab him, pull him this side, hope for the grenade rolls on the other side of that pillar because there's no one there, and fortunately it did. So it detonated, then uh, ended up hurting a couple of guys, uh, but relatively minor, uh, except for uh, one of the scouts. It looked very minor, but a piece of shrapnel got in his bloodstream and worked his way up and got lodged in his heart. And so he almost died from it. Uh, yeah, so then that happened, and then we left, had to get the guys uh, to the cache, because at first we were fine. The guys weren't injured bad. We were just staying on. Then the guys started having issues. We were like, we got to get the hell out of here. So we got to the cache, and then the decision was made. Uh, all of Alpha Company was leaving, and Charlie Company was going to come in and relieve us. Uh, just while the vehicle burned out, there was some sensitive equipment in it. The decision was made higher up to bring in some, uh, some birds and shoot some hellfires into it to destroy it. And so they told Charlie Company to stay back. And when they did, all the Iraqis just converged on the vehicle. It was all over the front page of every major website. It was just burning Bradley with yeah. the Al Qaeda, you know, Tawid and Jihad, the old flag stuck in the barrel, you know, innocents walking around it with AKs. And then uh, it wasn't Al Jazeera, it was another Middle Eastern uh, news agency had a guy reporting live on there. And then the Hellfires came in and uh, shot it, and he, he was killed live on air Wow! from it, yeah. You ever Google September 12th, 2004, Haifa Street? There's some wild articles. Uh, some people, Sebastian Younger did a documentary, it was like a couple years ago, it was The Rise of ISIS, I think is what it was called, and he goes back and talks about that day, and this is, this is him, not me, I'm in no way claiming that, but he goes back and states that uh, that was the day that uh, ISIS was born because it gave you know, because the Americans killed so many innocents 
who were just out protesting, and it gave them this kind of offshoot of al-Qaeda to al-Qaeda in Iraq, you know, it was our cavalry who wanted to be a little more brutal, and then now they had their, you know, they had their propaganda machine based off of what happened that day. Huh. Yeah, it was wild. Now, when you got back, what what was it like? How was the the, the men, and, and as a, a young commander and a lieutenant in that type of situation, um, you know what what was what was the feeling after just coming out of that? And I, it was awesome. I was tired. We got back. We all just passed out. Uh, but it was just this rush of you know. Yes, yeah, so we start operating up there in August. The first time we get engaged, we all freeze. We don't react well. You know, the next time we react better. And then, so this was like our first sustained big operation. You know, well, what we thought before was kind of big, this one ended up being big. And while we were far from perfect, uh, you know, the fact that of our platoon, the only injuries we had were basically self-inflicted. And we killed a lot of bad guys. Uh, and we all came home. You know, it was, uh, we took a lot of pride in that. Like, you know what? When it was funny, one of our privates, kid who didn't talk a whole lot, just got into Bradley on the way home, and I rode in the back, riding back, and he just looked up and was just like, holy shit, we were on point today. And it just felt good that we, we did our job and did it right. Yeah. Now, that was, <clears throat> that was the time frame where this unit, too, like you said, had always been the guys in the back, mm-hmm. you know? So this is their day to get up front. Yep. And, they shine, yeah. you know, and, and uh, I remember reading that aspect of it and, you know, I think that's when they really, I think, solidified and became the team that you had really hoped that they would be as a commander or as a, the leader, I should say. Yeah, oh. I think it definitely added that. There was this element of Charlie <clears throat> Company had been, you know, kind of sustained combat on Hypha Street for several mm-hmm. more months than us. So, it, it, like, it gave Alpha Company credibility. Yeah. Like, all right, you know, you're one of You've us. Arrived. You're, you're part mm-hmm. of the, the team up here. We can all... Let's all go kick ass together. Yeah. Now, you guys came home after that. Yeah. So, at the time, we were still staying. Uh, came home as in back. Yeah, back to the States. Oh, no, no. Shoot. That was that was, August. I, that was that was September of 2004. We didn't come back till May, March of 2005. Okay. Yeah. When, I, I can't remember the sequence of events that happened in, uh, was it your second deployment where? Second um, was when things went bad. Yeah. Yeah. So after this deployment, so let's, let's kind of jump ahead a little bit, because when, when you came back, um, this was the time frame where that commander that you had so much respect for, I think he was moving on, mm-hmm. right? And you were the XO at that time frame. Yeah, so it was another... I'm sorry. But no, I was going to say, and, and there was an opportunity that you didn't think that you were going to be taking that command either. No, it was, again, just another unique circumstance, I'll call it. So uh, right off that deployment, you know, nine months as a platoon leader, come home, they're like, all right, we want you to go be the XO of Charlie Company. Uh, it's great. I, I thought I was going to be a PL there, knew the guys, and it worked with them you know, the last couple of months. So I move over to be the XO of Charlie Company. And then a few months after that, we get sent to, well, so XO, then two months after that is when the Army, or at least CAV went through this reorganization and went from traditional siloed armored infantry battalions and, and brigades to these combined arms battalions. And so 1-9 had historically been all, 3rd Brigade had been infantry, uh, the infantry brigade. 1-9 uh, had been infantry battalion. And so 1-9 was reflagging and going out to Fort Bliss. So the three 
companies, Alpha Bravo and Charlie, were getting dispersed between units that were remaining. So Charlie 1-9 went over to 1-8 uh, Battalion, and then we became, we had to change our name to Bravo 1-8. And so that's a same group of men, just now under a different name. And then right after that, we got sent to New Orleans for Hurricane Katrina down there for a couple of, couple of weeks. And it's while we were there is when company commander Chris Ford, who you're talking about, who was just a stud, awesome guy, uh, was making the decision to leave active duty. And because we had gone to 1-8 that was historically an armor battalion, they had no infantry captains in the queue to take command. And so they asked me, I, would, I had basically had my packet for SFASN, because that's what I had done that summer right before Katrina. They're like, hey, we, you know, people are always like, wow, you got command early. I'm like, well, there's no one else. You know, it's not like <laughs> I did anything right. I was just, by one month, I was the, uh, the senior lieutenant in the battalion. And so they, they're like, if, we'll, if you'll take command, we'll let you stay in 90 days so you'll get raided. This will maybe help you out with your SF dream. Uh, you know, we're starting to get new soldiers in, start training the guys up a little bit, and then we get a captain, then you go do SF, and good luck, and, you know, go have a good life. So, yeah, so it was a wild stretch, man. Nine months as a PL, five months as an XO, and then I'm taking command, you know, as a, as a young first lieutenant. I, I love the morale stuff that you guys did, um, you know, with the when I think it was the mud and yeah. everything. So maybe, maybe talk about that a little bit. Um, I thought there was a really cool, you could really feel through the book of, of just how you brought the team together or the team came together, you know, with the great NCOs that you had that came from um, the original unit that transferred in and, and stuff as well that kind of helped you build that, that foundation, you know, with all yeah. these new guys coming in. Yeah, it really was. And, I've been asked before, you know, like what made us different. Uh, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't me. It, it was just the culmination of, you know, the, the right collective group of men put together in the right time and circumstance to go, went through all these experiences together that built just this, you know, unbreakable bond and, and trust of everything. I mean, it's just day in and day out. I mean, like, <clears throat> you don't hear about three grenades, you know, on the news back here, but the three grenades were shown at you. It's, it's a pretty damn big deal. You, yeah. through, you, know, you learned to trust it. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, just all the stuff that happened on Haifa. You know, we lost some guys while we were there, none directly under my command. But it just built this uh, incredibly tight, cohesive group. And so when we came back and we reflagged, a lot of people got out of the Army. A lot of people went to different bases. But sort of the same core, call it 50 60% that was there, uh, was the leadership my first sergeant was like I started off as an acting commander he started off as an acting first sergeant he had been the platoon sergeant for third platoon and just the men worship this guy and still do to this day uh, awesome awesome dude and you know the E5s the E6s and the E5s and E6s that left you know if I didn't miss them as much we, we got to keep the ones that we wanted to keep and so yeah so when new guys came in and this uh, I think this familiarity uh, and trust with the leadership that uh, it just, it was something special. And so, you know, the old cheesy motto, work hard, play hard. I mean, we trained our ass off, but, you know, we did that. Uh, you're referring to, we call it the Legion squad competition. Mm -hmm. And it was a chance for some of our younger E5s, like we put them in E6 positions and like go do this competition and some basic skills, PT test, you know, different things. And it was, it drug on probably six hours longer than it should have, more than likely from horrible planning on my part. But the culmination of the night was going to be, all right, we're going to have the ultimate winner is going to be determined. And we didn't tell them this. Uh, it's going to be the surprise. 
is going to be this basically big, huge mud wrestling match. And so I, I can't remember, was there four, four or five squads or six? I can't remember exactly. But we knew, we're like, as soon as we say go, they're not going to jump each other. They're going to jump us. And <laughs> yeah. they're going to beat the hell out of us. And so we had taken all the guys that were on profile and sent them out with a bunch of five-gallon water jugs and just got this it was like point break style from the movie they'll put the headlights on we're all driving up and it's like the made this mud just pouring water in it and as soon as they said go i mean they just one squad jumped on me and i was gonna say well back up because there was one of the officers who i guess who had just got a nice new car (laughs) and uh, so of course he had told the men that uh don't get me dirty because i'm gonna uh, have to drive that car home my wife will be upset or something of that nature so he stripped butt naked so, um, <laughs> to make sure that yeah. So a couple of funny things. Wait, about before that. or after the rest? <laughs> before. So uh, his name's Charlie Irwin, and he had been the platoon leader for Third Platoon, who actually wasn't with us anymore. He just came out to help out. He had gone over to take over the scout platoon, and Charlie drove out there that night in his wife's new car. Uh, Charlie and I are still great friends. Uh, Charlie's wife is a doctor, and Charlie's wife Jamie has delivered my last three children down in Fort Worth. So okay. Wow. Just cool little side story yeah. of that. Uh, but yeah, so Charlie had like, you know, guys, don't jump me. Uh, I seriously can't get Jamie's car all dirty. Yeah, it's like target. So it's like, I wish someone would record it. I mean, I just out of the corner of my eye, they say go and I just see him to start. And, and I, I don't know, I'm, I know I'm exaggerating, but it seemed like in under five seconds, he was butt ass naked. <laughs> <laughs> guys didn't give zero Fs. They jumped him. And I mean, so we're laughing like I'm on the ground, you know, like my side of my head, you know, I got, you know, a guy like, you know, taking some dirt and rubbing it in my ear. And I look over and I'm like, you know, all I see is Charlie's junk, like flapping around because they're rolling him around next to me. And then my first sergeant, like upside down and they're holding him upside down, like bobbing his head like a damn, you know, pile driver in the mud. But it was fun, man. You know, we were covered in mud and just after a long day, but just stuff like that, I think just really built up you know, the camaraderie that uh, a lot of units wish they had. Yeah, I could sense that. And it was, again, that that just strong bond of, you know, having a, a good uh, foundation of NCOs, I think, too. And obviously the leaders, uh, the, the officers um, as well, but those NCOs wanted to instill that pride and that tradition into a, a unit. And uh, you can see just by the way the, the book reads, the way you describe it, of how much that was able to come through. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't always happen that way. Yeah, no, I was incredibly fortunate. And, you know, myself, Chris Ford, I could go through all the officers. Well, I'll tell you, and we're not saying it to be humble or because it's the right thing you're supposed to say as an officer. I mean, it's really true. Like, we are a product of the men that mentored and trained us. And those were the NCOs that we had the privilege of, you know, air quotes leading. Yeah, yeah. So how long was it before you guys end up getting word that you're heading back over? Uh, we found out, so... I take command, supposed to be for three months. A captain shows up uh, that January, which is about the three-month mark, and I get the call from my battalion commander to go meet him at the brigade commander's office, and I figure this is my, hey, thanks for what you did. We got a captain now. Get the heck out of here. And instead, they said that, uh, hey, we have a new guy, but we also have a pretty good idea of when we're deploying and where we're going next, and that it's going to be a pretty rough area. And one eight, and I don't want to discount anything they went through the first deployment because they did see some action and, and had some loss, but nothing on the scale of what we had in in, a, in one nine. And they said they liked the idea of having because our core leadership was so 
you know, had, had been together and they're like, we like the idea of having that kind of unit to go and sort of start the deployment all kind of tip of the spear and while the other guys get up to speed and learn how to work in a combat environment as a collective group. So if you will withdraw your special forces packet, we will let you stay in command and take the unit back to Iraq. And then when you come back, you would have missed the first lieutenant promotable window uh, to go to selection, but we'll write a waiver for you. And that's why the brigade commander was in there. Like, I'll do everything in my power to make sure you get a shot. So it was a... You but know. what were you thinking at this exact moment? Because at one side of it, I'm sure you wanted to go, that was your dream at that point, now to go to SFAS, prove your, your worth there, and yet you're being asked to lead a group of men that you've served with, that you have great confidence in, that you've, this camaraderie that we're talking about here, yeah. and being asked by the, the leadership to, to take them back into combat. It was a no-brainer. Yeah, okay. It really yeah. wasn't. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was, and this sounds, you know, this is going to sound like the guy talking without a tab who never got a chance at SF, but to have that opportunity for what we went through to get to experience it again with that group of men, like, <clears throat> no tab is ever going to give me that, mm-hmm. uh, that, that experience in life. And again, I thought I'd be able to try it when I came back, and yeah, that's a whole other story. That's another story. <laughs> yeah. So you go back... Um, you know, you're, you're walking in there and you realize that, all right, I've got to get these guys ready now because we're headed back over. How was it now the second time around? You said it was pretty, this is when shit got real, it got really rough, so. Yeah, I mean, just the whole, it, it could not have been any more different, the fight we were going into. Well, first, it started off in uh, multiple ways, just bad. Like the weekend before we left, we had an alcohol-related incident, lost one of my soldiers, and then... As soon as we get there, they announce the surge. And so we get there. We're leaving late October, so you already know you're going to miss Thanksgiving and Christmas. So we get there, announce the surge. You're going to miss two Thanksgivings, two Christmases. The unit that we're replacing, doing the left seat, right seat rides, and everybody knows that by the end of the second week when there's only supposed to be a handful of them and mostly us, the new guys riding around, that those guys don't come out. You know, They've, they've done their job. Let them stay mm-hmm. back. And, well, our leadership and the outgoing leadership uh, from the group we were replacing, uh, they're like, no, we're going to do this by the book. And so the engineer company that was with 1-8, it was like the group we're replacing, like I'm telling you, like all but like eight guys were already back in Kuwait. And they had a handful of guys back. And it was the last mission driving home after resupplying one of the uh, one of the MIT teams were hit by an EFP, killed one of our guys from 1-8, one of the engineers, uh, but killed two guys from, I mean, you're, you're, you're a mile away from the base. Your bags are packed wow. to go get on a plane, fly to, to go meet your buddies. And this all happened like the first two weeks we're there. So, and then That's with that, the nuts. yeah, yeah, man, it was, uh, it, you know, again, and while the guy from one eight wasn't our guy is still like, you know, the shit's real. You've been through it before. Uh, but to start off like that was just was very ominous. And then, you know, whereas before Haifa Street was very targeted operations, you know, go out, you know, hour, two hours max. Here, completely different fight. It was 24-7 presence in sector. Uh, rarely ever did I take the group out as a company. Rarely ever did pull, full platoons go out. It was split up, drive around, eight-hour shifts. Uh, that part of eastern Baghdad, uh, we were right there on the outskirts of Sadr City. Hadn't seen American forces in a few years, and 
you know, EFPs weren't new, but EFPs were uh, definitely on the rise, in particular uh, in this predominantly Shia-operated area with uh, a heavy, heavy Iranian influence. I laugh about, you know, we weren't supposed to talk about it. We would mention Iran in any kind of after-action report of intel we were getting or intel we were getting, and we were told to redact it. We had no proof, yet we would get mortared at our patrol base and, like, find, you know, you know, writing it in Farsi, you know, from 2006, you know, so, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the EFPs were, that was a significant leadership challenge uh, because, you know, you see the devastation these things can do and you hear about it and then you turn around and look at your men and say, now I want you to go drive around for eight hours. You know, that's... And you didn't have m- many countermeasures at that point in time either. No. We were kind of... New to the game. Yeah, very. I mean, the counter you'll laugh when I say this. You probably remember it was, you know, we would get the big wooden stake and put the the heat little, four, you know, four yeah. by four shield in the front of the Humvees or the Bradleys. And yeah. yeah, that didn't work. Worth the crap. Yeah. So, you know, that said, you know, we were engaged a few times. We're hit by a few FPs, uh, none direct, fortunately. And then, uh, yeah, it was... February timeframe, you know, we had kind of been told that's when, as part of the surge, this is when we left Fab Rustamai and we had to go and live out amongst the people. So we went to, I think it was Fab Warhorse, it's 25 Cav, who has been there before during the big uprising back in 2004. In that area, that Fab hadn't seen American forces since the end of that deployment. And so we occupied it and the locals around us pretty much said, hey, you guys are cool. Stay around this area. Don't go past that street up there. That's where all the Iranians are. That's where all the bad stuff happens. That's where they make all the bombs. You know, just leave them alone and they'll leave us alone. And it was wild. It was this Iraqi security company who was run by a, a former CAD guy who was uh, <clears throat> become a good friend of mine. And <clears throat> so he facilitated a lot of this intel for us, you know, through these guys who all these guys admitted they were, you know, Mahdi Army guys back in 2004 fighting the Americans. But yeah. they're like, we have a common enemy in these Iranians that are coming in. We don't like them messing in our business. We want us, anyhow, weird <laughs> shit going on way above my, like, CIA ended up getting involved and stuff. It was wild stuff there. But sure enough, so we went up past that road. We had to and uh, got intel. There is cachet in this thing, tore the place apart. Uh, turns out it was a mosque which then gave them a reason. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so after that, things escalated incredibly quickly, and that's when it was... There was air quotes that were used. You can't see Yeah, that. sorry. Yeah, yeah. Air quotes for the... Air quotes. Uh, yeah, air quotes every, mosque. Every, everything was a mosque <laughs> after after the fact. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, there was a significant escalation in the EFP attacks after that, and unfortunately, kind of, you know, the, the big one and a big focus of... You know, why we're sitting here was uh, March 15th when lead vehicle was struck by an EFP and no one was injured, actually. And uh, But dismounts got out of the Humvees behind it to go begin recovery operations on it. And they had a secondary, you know, ball bearing, think Claymore-style IED designed for troops on the ground. And we know they do it. We look for it. Didn't find it this day. Uh Enemy gets a vote, and that day his, his vote won. And so it uh, killed four of my guys instantly. Uh, two suffered catastrophic catastrophic injuries. Uh, they were saved and lived temporarily for a few days based off the heroic actions of a young kid who jumped out. And one of the guys was an amputee and got a, turn on, a tourniquet on him. The other guy 
who was injured, significant wound to his abdomen from the ball bearing. But, uh, yeah, so then, uh, yeah, four guys one day, shitty day. This had an impact on you, a major impact on you. Yeah, of course. I mean, so many, on, on so many levels. I mean, one, one of the guys uh, that was killed, of the four that was killed instantly, uh, I had him take my place at the last minute because the other unit, the other platoon we were trying to coordinate with, they had, something had happened and they weren't sure on the plan. So it's like, Arnold, get your ass in here, take my spot. Hey, Sergeant Prater, I got to stay back here and, you know, figure this out with their platoon so they know where to link up with you guys. You know, and so, yeah, to have you know, that guilt hanging over you, uh, which, you know, in, in a time, and you can tell yourself even at the time that objectively you make 100 decisions like that every day. And more often than not, those decisions probably either end up with no consequence or more, if anything, usually a positive outcome. Uh, but it's, it's the way we as humans are wired. You think about the one where it didn't go well. So there was that, uh, you know, you go into that environment knowing that the chance of loss is, is going to be there having been through it before. So no one, I mean, no leader has ever said, you know, yeah, I hope that I only lose six this deployment. You, know, you don't want to lose anybody. You want to bring everybody home. That's the goal. But you got to be realistic about it. Now, I don't think anyone ever prepares for six in a day. Yeah. Uh, you know, whether it was those four and the other two, you know, as you know, spoiler alert, the other two died in the subsequent days. And just a very... Which was tough on the whole team, especially you, but, you know, I... I yeah, I mean, it was just... It was just such a painful way to go about it, man. I mean, to... Yeah. To lose four, and the four that we lost were, you know, I, I try to, and I don't want to say make light of it, like, you know, if they went through it, then like, all right, Jeff, pick 10 guys that if you got to lose some, they can come from this pile over here. But like, these guys would be the exact opposite. These were like the cream of the crop studs. You know, Terry Prater had won the Silver Star first deployment for throwing his body in front of a grenade of one of his soldiers that was injured. He got a, you know, probably could have medically retired, but fought it to stay in. You know, uh, knew his wife, two kids, uh, you know, Sergeant Green, Sergeant Brand, Jimmy Arnold. I mean, just uh, Sergeant Green was one of the ones that he made a few, a few more days. But yeah, so you lose four, but then you got the two to hang on to. Uh, Sergeant Green, just the life of the company, uh, Sergeant Leitner, a medic. And then you get the call that Sergeant Green died. And so that was on March 18th when we got the call that he had passed in Germany. So then we had the memorial service on March 20th and, you know, this sucks, uh, as you can imagine. And we get together afterwards, we laugh, we cry, tell stories, you know, and, uh, like, all right, you know, we're going to get back at it tomorrow. Let's do it for our boy, Doc Leitner. You know, let's, you know, you're not going to bounce back right away, but you got a rallying point. And the next day we get a call, Doc Leitner had made it back to the States and he passed from his injuries, you know, and then, all right, you do another memorial service. And they're like, all right, we got Kuhn, you know, the, the hero of the day, the guy that kind of, you know, while things didn't work out, you know, kind of set the example of what bravery looks like on the battlefield to go and do what he did. And, uh, and then, as you know, two and a half weeks later, after that, uh, Kuhn was shot and killed by an enemy sniper. So I it just, that stretch from March 15th to early April, man, was just, uh, Tough. Yeah. You sustained some injuries as well. Uh, I did. I had something from my first deployment. Uh, I think what you're referring to is not a combat injury. 
uh, but as part of uh, during one of those experiences, and I, I don't be vague on the D. I mean, it's in the book, uh, but the impact from that though, and then coupled with this, this this in deployment yeah. and what you experienced, I think from my interpretation of reading the book are the two things that, um, you know, it started then causing you to struggle with post-traumatic stress, sure, even traumatic brain injury multiple times, but those, those, those experiences. Oh yeah. Yeah. And the, the deal with Kuhn was the deal of, you know, you kind of, you know, it's, Again, I've said it multiple times. It's not one singular event, but it's all these things that happened, you know, over two deployments in this case, you know, over a three week stretch, all these things that were going on. And then, you know, had the incident where, you know, I was carrying one of the men in and, you know, head wound, uh, ended up, you know, I went to clean myself up later to go address the men and give them an update on them. You know, that's when I, you know, reached up and saw I had a cut going across my face and uh, was bleeding a little bit and kind of thinking, what the hell, where'd that come from? And then looked down and I got, you know, chunks of a skull stuck in my hands and realized when I'd wiped the sweat off my face, I had cut myself open. And I, and I bring that up not for shock value. I bring that up for like, that was the moment where I like literally like a shift in kind of me. Mm-hmm. Uh the, you know, the, the PTS, you know, whatever phrase people want to call it. For me, it was just an anger and rage and like almost not recognizing, you know, now I kept it together in front of the men and when I had a job to do, right. but when I shut the door and was alone, uh, you know, wasn't real proud of the man I was because of the things I was thinking. It was challenging when you returned back, obviously. Oh yeah. Yeah. I came back, marriage was on the rocks again. Uh, you know, Christy and I had split before, came back this time. You know, we had had Cole, our son, before that second deployment. That's one thing we didn't get into is through all this, you know, I left a three-month-old little boy. Mm. Uh, you know, and so, yeah. And, and again, you don't realize it. I mean, you can realize you've been through these experiences that are just kind of, you know, unique. Uh, but I was, I, I was so focused on coming back and being a father uh, and the best father I could be and being there for the men that I neglected to, uh, I was, I was such a hypocrite because everything I told everybody else not to do are the exact things that I did. Uh, mm-hmm. and it yeah. led to a, led to a tough stretch, you know, that day and that day in the bathroom, you know, cut myself open. Uh, I always say that was when the five year dark period started in five years of my life. I'll never get back. And you never ended up going to SFAS. I was so disenchanted with the military at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and look, now, I, I'm not, that was our mission. You, you can't, I tell people, you can't have it both ways. You know, Haifa Street was awesome, that deployment. The second deployment, uh, the mission was different. The, uh, the situation on the battlefield had changed. Uh, it was more political. And, you know, I'm a junior officer. What the hell say do I have in that? I just... I saw some of the things that I saw going on were things that uh, I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying they weren't things that I wanted to be a part of. Mm-hmm. And I saw decisions being made at uh, leadership levels above mine that I guarantee you when those guys were lieutenants and captains, they said, when I'm in this job, I'm never going to do shit like that. And then they get in that job one day and they do it. 
and I didn't want to be a part of that. So I made the decision to resign my commission. Hey, I'm not bitter. I don't want this in any way to come. I love my time in the military. I just, if the special ops route didn't work out, uh, I, I was so disenchanted. I, I don't, I, I didn't have the will to follow through with it at that point. Yeah. No, I, I get it. And at this point, I mean, you're still not being able to really deal with those demons and you, you end up going out into the private sector and, and doing quite well. Um, but that was kind of a front. It was a, it's a hell of an actor, man. I mean, in, in, I get it again, but I think that's what a lot of people sometimes see is that side and they think that everything's, you got it together. Everything's great. Mm-hmm. And well, it's it's easy to look at a at a, at a man or you know any service member as a resume. <clears throat> you know? mm-hmm. And I was talking to a ranger buddy of mine, guy that we served with, you know, attempted suicide, and we're like, "Well, look at the, all the stuff he's done. He's got this yeah. great career and beautiful family, and you know, he's got the world, you know, in his hand." And my friend was like, "That's just his resume, man. Like, yeah. it's, that's it." So, yeah, it's and you're taught to act, right? Like you're taught to act in the military. Yeah, yeah. You push these things away, and it's it's funny. Not funny you say that, but you bring that example up. So fast forward a few years, and <clears throat> job company I was at, who I'm actually back with again now, but they had <clears throat> they knew about some of my experiences. They wanted to do a profile, you know, on the experiences I went through. <clears throat> Man, I'm sorry. Try. For Memorial Day, and so. We do, and it's published on the inner, you know, it's a big company and in our company website, cover page. And like all these people out there are like, wow, we had no idea you went through stuff like that. And what do you think? Am I going to walk around like your buddy? Like, hey, let me tell you all these shitty things that I went through in life, you know? And you yeah. know, no, that's not part of my introduction. You know, that was, that was a part of me and will forever be a part of who I am. But, you know, the whole shapes me. It doesn't define me. Mm-hmm. Yet you still had the deal and confront some of the challenges and um, you started getting involved in um, introduced to, I guess, CrossFit, which of course was huge. And uh, yeah, so there was enough, you know, I had, so I had been in Colorado and then, you know, the split had happened and Chrissy and Cole stayed back in Austin. So my company was good enough to get me down to Tyler, Texas. Mm-hmm. I had never been to Tyler had never driven through Tyler. I just knew Tyler was closer than Denver. So when they called and said, hey, we can get you to Tyler. Do you want to go check it out? I'm like, no, I'll take it. And got down there, didn't know a soul. Uh, and I, there's still enough there. Like when I talk about this five-year dark period, you know, I, it wasn't drugs or alcohol or, you know, no thoughts of suicide or anything like that. It was more just, now, I think if I wouldn't have had coal in my life, we may be singing a different tune. Uh, but I always had this, this, you know, you know, beacon out there, you know, to be, even though I knew I wasn't being the man that I was capable of, or, you know, I say, I need to, I need to do something to get me back to being me. Uh, I didn't know what that something was and I damn sure wasn't taking enough steps to do it, but I had that to kind of keep me on the right path. Mm-hmm. I didn't do a good job in Colorado. I always think back like Colorado was probably the darkest times and just like literally go to work, put that act on. Wow. Look at Jay. He's got a good job. He's doing this. And like literally go in and just turn the lights off in the house and just sit there and just think about or turn on sad music or 
you know, death metal music to get that rage and anger out and, and then beat myself up for the hypocrisy of what I was doing of then someone would pick up the phone and man, I was freaking Dr. Phil, man, I said all the right things, but I, you know, I, the mirror thing jacked me up so bad that I, I struggled to look into a mirror. Like I did everything in my power to not look into a mirror. I mean, I still kept, I shaved my head. I brushed my teeth in the shower just because I looked in the mirror. I didn't see me. I saw that image of that cut and that sound he had made. And it just would ruin my day and week. But if somebody else would call me about something, I would like, you got to confront it. You got to deal with it. And I would just get so angry at myself for again, just being a hypocrite. So get to Tyler. I'm like, all right, I'm going to do better. And so I went and joined a gym and started doing CrossFit. And, uh, then I had the case with my mom where, you know, again, I thought I was putting the act on my mom, who's incredible, saw right through it and just sat me down one day and broke down crying and just told me that it broke her heart that she looked in her baby's eyes and baby looked dead inside and that it mm. broke her heart that she was nothing she could do to fix it. And, uh, she knew it was something I needed to figure out on my own. Uh, but she was worried about me. So, uh, so that led to me going and trying counseling again and really, you know, opening up and part of that it leaded like to share the story with, uh, with a group of people. This is after multiple sessions of, you know, may, kind of me coming to this epiphany of, and, and I'll never forget it. And, you know, it, you know, I told the guy kind of everything that had happened and we got done and kind of culminated with the whole, you know, for whatever reason, that whole thing with the cut myself open, it seems to be like the, I don't know, the pinnacle of the shit, you know, whatever you want to call it. And I just remember he looked at me and just said, you know, like, wow, you know, Jeff, you know, Hollywood couldn't make something that messed up. And, uh, you have to learn to live with this. You have to learn to accept this. And, uh, you have to realize that every day you wake up and only one person, uh, you know, has the ability to choose how you're going to respond to these things that have happened to you in life. And it's you. And so, you know, that message of, uh, of choice and acceptance just really resonated with me. And so, yeah, so then I went out and he, part of it kind of gets the final test was to go and share it with a group of people. Who are your friends who never served at this time frame, dude? One right. of them had been a Marine years mm. ago. Uh, he'd kill me for saying that because he is <laughs> a Marine still there. Uh, <laughs> awesome guy. Uh, yeah, but so he, he got it. We just opened up and I always laugh. It's like. You, just, you basically just sat everybody down and just said, I got, I've got something I've got to tell you. Yeah, I mean, they knew something. Mm -hmm. I mean, I got a bunch of tattoos, and they knew they were, you know, they, they knew something, but they didn't know the story. And so this night, I uh, always laugh. I'm like, you know, it took me a, a beer or eight to get the liquid courage up to start talking. But it was the first time I'd sat down with a group kind of, you know, at one time, and I literally just started talking for like an hour and a half and uh, got done. And, yeah, from that, that's where the idea of, you know, the Legion 8 workout, because we always refer to the men as a Legion 8 uh, you know, we've had suicides from the units since we've been back. We've lost several more, uh, some other just random, crazy deaths, heart attacks, you know, so the, you know, original Legion company up to 19 are, are gone. Mm. Uh, yeah. So we came up with the idea for the workout. It was supposed to be a, a one-time deal. And then I uh, had a really great turnout for it. It's supposed to be a workout turned into a Saturday morning event where they asked me to talk and kind of share a little bit about the men. 
and I did. And that, so that was a very powerful moment. I don't want to like just skip over that too, because I think in the book, um, I mean, by the time I'll tell you, by the time I got done reading your book, Jeff, I was in tears. And I think there are so many powerful moments through the book where, um, you know, you can tell what, how you touched others' lives and, and whether that was, you know, you being the image and putting yourself out there, but in the end it was just being genuine and being you because you're exposing yourself and then it became even more powerful to those who, um, family members and stuff of some of these lost soldiers, some of these eight. So, yeah, it was, and it wasn't my idea. It, it was supposed to be a, a workout. A couple of us do it, take some pictures like the Murph. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but Murph, every place does. This was supposed to be like me and this core group of people do it. And then, uh, the owners of the gym, you know, we asked them if we could come up on a Sunday afternoon and do it. And they, they were the ones who had the idea to kind of open it up to more people and ask if yeah. I would be willing to at least share with people what we're doing. And then someone else said, well, if we're going to have X amount of people there, let's make some t-shirts for it. And then I was worried that I wouldn't do a good job of really explaining, you know, what it was about in the men. And so I, uh, made this video, this little video collage of the men and, uh, and it's just weird how it all came together. And it was just like, we got done, they turned the lights back on, you know, hundred people in a room bawling their eyes out, you know, from this short video on the men. And then, you know, I taught my first Sergeant Orlando Garcia, he was there. Sergeant Green's mom was there. Uh, and it was just, I actually I did very little talking. And then it was a couple of years into it when, every time I would do this and share these stories about these men, then people would come up and share their experiences with me. And it made me realize that I never, I, I was very vulnerable in the sense of like how these loss affected me, but it was, I always spoke about the men. And so I felt it was, you know, again, stop being a hypocrite. Everybody's sharing their stuff with you, share some stuff with them. And so that's when I started opening up on a broader, I guess, scale, you could say about what I went through personally and some of these events that, uh, and how they impacted me and the thoughts. So, uh, and so I think that's one kind of, you know, Legion eight sort of, there was two different paths from there. Like this combined thing sort of went into, you know, Legion eight is going to go the nonprofit route. And then that's when I was approached about writing the book and kind of, you know, they're, they're mutually, you know, obviously they tie together. The stories are completely intertwined, you know, but, but one is all about the men and the other is while it's my story, it's, it kind of gives me Legion eight is focused on these. My story allows me to focus on these two groups of men over two deployments and just the incredibly tough times, uh, incredible loss, but also incredible success. Uh, the, the, you know, how hard it's been since we've been back on some of the guys, but yet how much good we've done as well. And while it's, it's oftentimes told through my voice, uh, I never look at it as I'm the one making an impact in these other people's lives, veterans and non-veterans. You know, it's the, that's why the, the book ends with, you know, together we are legion because uh, Linda, Sergeant Green's mom, tells a story and it's in there about, and sorry, I know I'm going on and on here, but you got me on a roll. It's all right. But uh, she was at a Gold Star uh, family event and she was talking to this other uh, young woman 
And Linda was telling her and the younger girl who had lost her son. And she was telling about her Legion eight event she had coming up too. Cause Linda goes to all of them with me. She's incredible. Uh, and she's telling her about it. And a lady just started crying and she was just like, what's wrong. She was like, you know, my boy doesn't have a Legion eight. And that just hit me in a way that, uh, you know, that I get it. You know, I always say like when people talk about military and podcasts, no one ever Googles, you know, they, they Google Delta force, the, the Rangers, the, you know, and the soft guys are awesome. I got friends and those stories are, are sexy and they're cool. And they, they and that's what I'd want to listen to 20 years ago when I was going through that. But there's so many more stories on the conventional side that haven't been told. Uh, and some of it's just numbers. I mean, there's just a lot more of us than there are out there. And, you know, it's, it's not some thing that I asked for in life. Uh, Linda and I talk about all the time, you know, we didn't ask for this platform in life, but life gave it to us. So now what are we going to do with it? And she used to look at it as, you know, it's not just a responsibility, it's an obligation. If in some way, my story, which is a story of me and my men can be representative and be in a way, a Legion eight for others, then I'm going to look for any and every opportunity I can to share that and get the word out. Legion eight itself. Why is, why is the eight? The eight men that we lost over there. So we got, we kind of, Coon was the seventh man that we lost over there. And then Sergeant Caleb Christopher was killed two months after that. Uh, he was hit, his vehicle was hit by an EFP. And so, yeah. And then since then, like I said, we've had the, the suicides and the other loss, but, uh, Legion eight is just how that started, but it's, you know, like I said, together we're all Legion. Mm-hmm. What, you know, a lot of times in this show here, we end up talking about post-traumatic stress and the challenges that veterans have and um, trying to deal with some of that. And there's a bad stigma, you know, inside the service. Um, many people don't want to come forward and talk about it. And it's the same way when they get off active duty. I think it's getting a little bit better, but for a long period of time there, many people would actually come in denial and say, I don't have post-traumatic stress. It's not my, you know, I, I know guys that do. I don't yeah. have it. Uh it's, I, I, I was that guy at first. I think we all were in some way. Uh, you know, somebody had asked me before, they're like, you know, can you, you know, define to me what PTSD is? And my response back to that is, okay, I'll do that as soon as you define to me what normal is. Mm. Yeah, it's good. Because it, yeah. it's, it's so different for the individual and it's all relative and we all have perspective in life and that perspective is shaped off our own life experiences and none are better or worse than the others they're just different and it's how it impacts that person and the individual and you know it's and that's why i talk obviously a lot about the veteran community but the non-veteran community as well because you know through talking about these things and ptsd is not exclusive to the military and you know tragedy and trauma don't discriminate they don't just pick us because we wear the uniform uh, it can happen to anybody. And so I hate it when people, non-veterans come up to me, I'll do a talk, I'm doing a talk next week. And I guarantee you, I, I bet you a hundred dollars. The first person that comes and talks to me afterwards is going to say, well, Hey, look, what I went through is nothing compared to what you went through. And that's such bullshit because it's how it impacts the person. And I think first we have to get over that stigma or just, it's not a damn competition. You know, it's about finding a way to collectively you know, be there to support each other and people need different levels, different types of support from different people. It's not a one size fits all. I couldn't have said it any better. 
No, I think it's it's crucial to tie in the civilian aspect of it. I mean, it, and it's refreshing to hear your perspective. Like, and I agree with it. Your suffering is suffering. It doesn't matter if it's you never served at all. But that's how we have to come together. You know, we can't just always look down our nose at civilians because they didn't serve or vice versa. Yeah. You know. Well, you would think that the closest to the military, because, I mean, a lot of veterans end up going out into the uh, police force and everything. So you would think that there would be a more common ground and commonality there. But there still is a lot of this us and them. And yet they go, and we've talked about this multiple times on the show, they go to the same trauma space a lot because, you know, when they go to the restaurant with their family, when they, Mm -hmm. you know, take their kids to school or when they're, you know, driving to work, they may pass by a lot of these very same scenes. Whereas, you know, for veterans, it's 4,000 miles away. Right. Yeah. And take it a step further of, you know, before you deployed, Paul, like how long did you train up for it? About seven months. Yeah. Yeah, And so, and so you go to most, you know, law enforcement officers, they go to training and then you get through it and you're shipped off to do your job and you may get, you know, what's the, uh, what's the follow on, you know, what, what additional training, you know, refreshing training. It's not going to the range, you know, once a year to get qualified. Most of them don't have the money. Yeah, exactly. Cause it's funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so where's the, the mental aspect of that? I mean, I remember them talking to us I mean, we had the guy that wrote on killing come in and talk to us before our second deployment. You know, you're not seeing that out there in the, in the first responder community yet. We expect because there are hard earned tax dollars that, you know, they're going out and they're supposed to be there and uh, perform 100% uh, all the time. You know, I just, I just think it's unrealistic and that sometimes we're not setting, you know, that community up for success the way we do our military when we send them overseas. I also like the way, you know, the way you presented it is that there, you know, there are people who come up to you and say that my experience is nothing like yours. And in some of these cases, or probably most of them, they're, um, they're civilians who may have just gone through depression, um, you know, challenging parts of their life that they don't call it PTS, but yet when they hear your story, it takes them to that moment. And so they know the pain and what you're feeling, uh, but yet they don't want to, again, it's a game of, well, you're on a different scale, you know, or we're measured differently. Yeah. It's a couple of thoughts on that. So one, I think it's, uh, I think we're all sitting around here, you know, we've all served. We don't see ourselves in that manner, but a lot of people look at us as, you know, they're badasses, tough dudes, you know, tough women. They went out and, you know, I could never do that kind of stuff. And so, you know, to go and stand in front of a room of, you know, a couple of hundred people, strangers and stand up and like be completely open and vulnerable and talk about these things and how they affected me. And, you know, and then to cry in front of those people, I think it, it like gives them permission, like, you know, man, if he can do it, so can I type deal. Uh, and one of the reasons I'm so passionate about doing that is, you know, kind of back to the, uh, the, the soft example and kind of being trying to be representative for the conventional, uh, you know, the conventional troops out there is I think there's a relation sometimes like you see, uh, you know, a ranger guy, a seal guy, a cat guy, you know, whatever it is. And you hear him on a podcast and it's, it's awesome. It's cool. But people look at like, like, 
I could never be that guy. Like they don't relate to him. Like I'm going to listen to that, but man, I don't have that in me type deal. But yet you see an average Joe like me sitting in front of you and you hear these same things that you may hear the same message, but there may be an ability to relate more almost like the, you know, the common man, if you want to use that thing. Uh, so I think that helps the relation piece, you know, the ability to relate, I should say as well with the, uh, with the non-veteran community. What's so odd about that though, is that, yeah, we have had some serious, what most people would call badasses and stuff sitting across and, you know, on the microphone. Thanks, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) Paul included. And yet, and yet none of them, I don't know that I, maybe I can't say none. Majority of them are so humble. Yes. And will, don't even want to talk about that, but they know if it does good in the community for them to share that story or at least a part of that, and they get an opportunity to have a platform that we provide for them to talk about something else, then um, they'll do it, you know, and yeah. they'll talk about it. But that's, you know, we, you kind of touched on the very beginning of the, uh, the episode. It doesn't necessarily define you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't define me. Um, it doesn't define Paul or any other veteran. It shouldn't. You know, it's a part of our journey and it's a part of our life of serving and what happened, everything else. And so let's not, to your point, too, of let's not make it any lesser degree of, of somebody who serves conventional, somebody who's a mechanic, somebody who is a cook. Or they're all, we all have a role to serve within the military service, and civilians also do. I mean, we've probably all been approached by civilians who come up and say, you know, I wanted to go in, but, you know, and then the story. Yeah. And it's like, dude, you're doing whatever you went and did, your journey. I guarantee you've done a lot. And the fact that you're sharing this stuff with me and talking about the good that you're doing out there in your community, I mean, you did the same thing. It was yeah. just a different world, you know? We just live in this world of comparison. I, I mean, it's, yeah. And, and let me be clear, when I say people don't relate to the soft people, it's not the soft people asking for that. You're right. They're just normal. They're the first I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, they're not, they're not the ones trying to put themselves yeah. up on this pedestal. It's other people that do it, again, because we like to compare. That's... Yeah, uh, and I don't know why we have this just inherent nature as humans to do that, but uh, if we could just break down those walls, and there are so many who ended up going conventional, like like those who in civilian side that didn't end up going in the service at all. There are a lot of those guys who are conventional who probably had the same opportunities and could have gone mm-hmm. that route if they chose to do it. It's not that they didn't choose. It's just not what their destiny was, where their passion was, what they wanted to do or right. whatever. Um, yeah, I agree. I, I think that. And so what we end up doing, too, is then we start listening to stories. And if you have post-traumatic stress, if you have, you know, a combat story or something and you were not in special operations for whatever reason, it's just not a qualifier now. It's, yeah. you know. It's sort of like the tab, not tab. I looked at you in your uniform, your trophy case. It just wasn't full. Yeah. It's a a perfect example of that is, so with the book, and I I had an amazing co-writer. If if I would have done it, it would have taken somebody. Lauren Mickler. Yep. Uh, So remember that name, Big Things, uh, coming for her down the road. His first book she's ever written was this. uh, Yeah. And 
It is. It's a very well written book, and I mean, I, I was going to end up promoting it more and more as we started wrapping up the show, but. Um, Legion Rising, uh, Surviving Combat and Scars It Left Behind, a soldier story, Jeff Morris, with um, with Lauren Mickler. And when I read this book, the thing, and I've read a lot of uh, books, um, I, I got to tell you, it's one of the better written books. If I didn't know it was about your story, it could be a fictional story in which um, a very well author, you know, who has put out these fictional mm-hmm. stories, of, I would have thought that's what it was. Uh, because it was that good of, and I have the dog-eared, I didn't even get into all these different things, but I had dog-eared through the book, all these things that just stood out to me that I wanted to go back and, and read again. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a big reader of like leadership books and stuff. And Paul will tell you, I don't always Mm -hmm. pick up the books and, and read them and stuff, but I thought, you know, I need to take something on vacation when I'm reading and uh, or when I'm sitting out there in the beach and I'm not baking in the sun, but I'm baking under the uh, umbrella, like we talked about. Your sexy white legs picture yes. you said. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Skinny yeah. ones. And the, uh, the picture complete. it doesn't take much to roast them. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I said, ah, let me take the book. And I sat out there and um, I read this book. And I think I texted you right away and said, I think I read this book in like an hour and a half. Yep. And I couldn't put the thing down. Um, it is a very well-written book, and I, I really um, ask everybody to go out there and check it out and purchase it. Um, I mean, I think your story and what you're describing here, we didn't even get into a lot of the depth, and I tried to hit at least enough of the surface so that we can talk about the main topic around post-traumatic stress, but there's so much depth in here and so much that's in here that... Um, and then there's even sections in the back of where others have made their comments and in, in letters and yeah, you that, know that, uh, their first meeting of you and such that that that, that got me. She surprised me with that one. That's the, amazing. Yeah, and and I, and I I could I was reading it when I was thinking. What is it? It's like letters from your boys. No, it's from the mother. Oh, gotcha. so it's just people that have been affected by. So like gotcha. one yeah. of the guy's moms uh, that okay. lost uh, one of the guy's sisters. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a story there yeah. uh, of where you were trying to find one of the soldiers, and I won't get into it. But it's it's so yeah. important to sort of do work. I should say yeah. it's so important to do work like this, though. Like, yeah, you, like we've all watched Band of Brothers. Yeah, and those guys were like in their 70s and 80s before they got any recognition for what they did. Mm-hmm. And how how much harder were some of those people's lives? Where if they were able to just walk in and say, "Hey, I was one of the guys." Yeah. In the Battle of the Bulge. Yeah. You know, like I was in this company. Like we did these great things, you know. Yeah. No, sort of I, like SEALs. You know, they walk in, they're like, you got great hair. Like, yeah, I was a SEAL. And then they get the job, you yeah. know. But like regular Army guys, Ranger guys, like, like oh, what park did you work at? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know? if, if you'll allow me, I want to read this poem. Yeah. Or this. Um, so this is one of the dog ears um, that I had uh, dog ear or pages that I had dog eared and everything. And you wrote... I remembered a poem that a man by the name of Frank Feely sent me during my second deployment. It read, it's titled, It's All in a State of Mind. If you think you're beaten, you are. If you think you dare not, you won't. If you like to win, but don't think you can, it's almost a cinch, you won't. If you think you'll lose, you're lost. For out in the world, you'll find... Success begins with a fellow's will. It's all in a state of mind. For many a game is lost 
ere even a play is run, and many a coward fails, ere even his work is begun. Think big and your deeds will grow. Think small and you'll fall behind. Think that you can think that you can and you will. It's all in a state of mind. If you think you're outlast, you are. You've got to think high to rise. You've got to be sure of yourself before you can ever win a prize. Life battles don't always go to the stronger or faster man, but sooner or later the man who wins is the fellow who thinks he can. And back to if you want to, and that poem is just so impactful for me throughout these experiences, but it even, it motivates me a lot now because what we were starting to talk about before the book about the, again, it sounds like we're picking on the soft community and we're not, but so I was very fortunate. Uh, I got a really good agent, which is hard to get agent these days and just through a mutual connection. And I don't know why this guy picked me, but he's had, he's big time. And, but he was very honest with me up front. He said, and these are his words, he's similar to you. He's like, Jeff, this is, I've been doing this a long time. This is one of the best books I've read in this space. Now, what we're going to have a struggle with is no one has any idea who the hell you are. <laughs> and yeah. so we took it to the big publishers and they have their process. And then you ultimately make it to the, the pub board. And they may have different names for it. And of the, the big five, I think we made it to the pub board on four of them. And everyone had the same response of, Awesome book, wasn't a seal, wasn't a part of capturing Bin Laden, wasn't. Yep. And I'm not, not. It's it's reality. And they're like, mm -hmm. so at that point, it was like, it's a great story. We just don't think it'll sell because no one has any idea who this guy is. Uh, and so that's why I'm incredibly appreciative of opportunities like this with the platform and scale that you guys have to to get out and share the story. And it's not about selling books. I don't make jack off selling books. Uh, Most people do make, don't realize that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's not how yes. books work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a, you know, so spoiler, yeah, if you're looking to write one, be careful, don't, don't do it for the money. Yeah. So it's never been about the money. It's, it's about the message behind it and the story uh, of just being able to share it and talk about it more. And so I, I go back sometimes. People ask me like, oh, when are you going to write another book? And I'm like, I have... I may at some point, but I have no intention of writing another book because I don't think, yeah, this one's been out two years now and, but I, I'm not done with it. Uh, you know, I, I've gotten so many texts like what you sent me that night and, and I'm not saying that in any way to be like, again, I help Lauren, but most of the damn book, I can't take credit for it. You know, I have an asterisk on my Instagram page. If you look at it, it'll say best-selling asterisk author asterisk because I, you know, played a much smaller part than she did. So uh, but I just had too many people reach out and talk about the impact that the message, not my story, that the message has had on them. Yes. And uh, so I don't think we're done. Well, and I think, you know, for me, let me first uh, um, put a disclaimer out there. And I don't mean this to be a negative thing. I get sent uh, books by people that say, hey, listen, I'd love to come on your show. And they'll send me a book. In your case, you, this didn't, uh, it didn't go down that way. Mm -hmm. I want to be very clear that we actually scheduled the podcast and I want to say maybe we had to reschedule. Um, I can't remember the it reason. A, it was April. I had just gotten, we were trying to do it live. wasn't going to work because I was moving. Yeah. Then it was just getting settled in Indy and I was like, it's going to be too crazy with the kids at home. I want to do it and, live. And it happens a lot like that. Like we just finished a, an episode and it happens a lot where we end up rescheduling for whatever reason. Uh, but I went ahead and bought the book and I went out and, and bought it and I thought, well, you know, um, 
you know, primarily why? Because it was conventional forces. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wanted to pick up the book and, um, not to mention, I thought the title was cool. Legion rising. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's a powerful uh, thing. When I think of legions, I think of the Roman empire and, you know, the legions and stuff. And, and, you know, when I first started reading the book, I didn't know what to expect. By the time I was halfway through, I thought I can't put this book down. And by the and when I was done, I sat there on the beach and thank God I had sunglasses on and there was nobody really around at that moment. But I just looked over at my wife when she finally sat down and I go, wow, that was powerful. So <clears throat> thank I, you. I think you have um, created something that if more people will read the message that you tried to convey in here of not there I was, but more of, you know, there is like this poem, you're only defeated if you think you are, you know, you, you can be as strong as you want to be if you set your mind to it. And, um, it's, it's a powerful message, I think, you know, through the book. Yeah. Well, thank you for the kind words. Uh, we talked earlier. I'm, I'm still, even though it's been out two years, I still. I had to monograph it. Yeah, <laughs> that was a, that was an awkward moment yeah, for him. Yeah, and, yeah, still not still not used to that. But it's uh, and again back to what I said earlier. Like it's it's almost in a way surreal. Like to me, that's that's my life. That's what I know. And to me, that's normal. But again, define normal. And so the idea uh, and it's taken a little bit for me and I did a horrible job marketing it up front. To me, it was just, I thought it was going to come out and 50 fans, friends and family, I could guilt into buying it, you know, but Hey, I did it. I got it out, told the story. My kids could read it one day and think their old man's not, you know, quite the nerd we think he is, you know, but it's, and as it's, it's grown to get the opportunity and, you know, uh, to talk about it more and just to hear like just messages I get from people. Uh, it's so, powerful and it fuels me to, to want to do it more. Uh, you didn't, that's what's cool, cool about this, Jeff, is that you didn't go out seeking fame, seeking that. And it, it just kind of came, it was fluid. Like you said, when you were asked to speak, it wasn't, Hey, look at me, we're creating this workout, you know, and yeah. it, it wasn't to create this new, it just organically happened. It did. And I think that's been, uh, I, I am the first to realize that I am spectacularly average. Uh, but I, like a lot of people, I am been surrounded by, uh, other average people, other exceptional people. But, you know, the differentiator is that put together in this incredible, unique circumstance that just created this. I don't, I don't know what this define what is Legion. And it, it's hard for me to but I just know that it's, it's something special and I think it's representative of what we all have in us and all can be. Uh, it's full of the highs. It's full of lows. Uh, it's at the end of the day, it, it's special and it's something that we should all strive for. When you mentioned um, the company and nonprofit, all those types of different things. So maybe expand upon that because people are going to hear this. They're going to probably going to buy the book and they're going to want to know, okay, I want to be a part of, like you said, I want to be a part of Legion 8. You yeah. Know? So the, the nonprofit, I'm kind of in a st state of, uh, so again, this sort of all came together very quick and it went from selling shirts, you know, to fly family members in for Legion 8 events, speak, to, speak at different CrossFit gyms around the country to people wanted to donate some pretty large chunks of change and what we can do to help. Uh, then my wife and I had 
three kids in five years. She did all the hard work and then COVID <laughs> happened. Uh, and part of that, it was, you know, as I got more into the veteran nonprofit sector, I just saw that uh, they're all great. They all have the best intentions. Uh, but it's like 400,000, yeah. something crazy. Yeah. And there's only so many funds in a way you almost end up kind of cannibalizing each other by going out to go for some of the funds. So I, yep. I don't want to say I hit pause on Legion eight. Uh, you know, I still would do, I couldn't travel as much because of the kids and then COVID. So the CrossFit thing is kind of slowed down, but it gave me a time just to, you know, I, if I do this, these are, these are my men, our boys, and it's their name and their legacy and their families that the promise we made to them that their name will never be forgotten. That's why every Legion eight shirt you see outside of this one has the guy's names on it. And so when someone's wearing it, what does that mean? I mean, I got a cool picture with President Bush, you know, and again, take politics out of it. You know, President Bush has a Legion 8 shirt with the guy's names on it. And that's cool. Uh, but yeah, but I just like, did I want to be, and if, you know, if that's where we end up being, like one of the other 400,000, great. But I, it was the impact in the non veteran community that really got me thinking on a broader scale of how can I tie those two things together? Uh, I've spent an immense amount of time thinking about it over the last year. I haven't come up with what that's going to look like yet. Uh, you know, there's an idea of, you know, a lot of nonprofits partner up together. Sometimes they're usually in one particular segment. You know, is there a way for Legion Native Function in a way to kind of be the hub of a wheel to kind of tie in veterans with non-veteran nonprofits for different things? Again, it's not a one-size-fits-all type deal. So, again, just some of the ideas that I'm toying around with. So I say that, like, I really scaled back the website, just sort of put, there, there's a one-pager on there right now. You know, it's Legion 8 and the number 8.org. You know, people want to donate money. Uh, but right now, I almost felt kind of, it, until I clearly define what that mission, mission and message are going to be at, uh, I'm not going to half-ass the guys' names. Uh, I'm also not going to go out and solicit donations from people. You know, if people want to donate to it, great. But I'm not actively doing it until... I can, with more fidelity, tell people exactly what their funds will be going towards. Yeah. So right now, though, Legion 8 workouts still continue. Oh, yeah. People still do them. I get wild. I mean, somebody sent me a picture a couple of years ago. They were at an army base in Africa, and somebody was doing <laughs> Legion 8. You know, it's it's always what I'll be out uh, sometimes, and, you know, I got a bunch of Legion 8 shirts, of course, and... You know, I was at Costco one day and like passed somebody and they were just like, man, have you, have you done the workout? That workout is so hard, man. Like some people say, you know, it's like there's Murph and there's Legion 8. It's a brutal workout. I uh, was just getting around. I'm coming in here trying to find it. Um, but it's funny, like how many people like recognize, and I'll, you know, it's, it's been pretty neat to see how much it's grown. Ah, here it is. The Legion 8 WOD was officially created. It consisted of... Eight rounds for time of eight thrusters, 75, 55 pounds, eight chest-to-bar pull-ups, eight clapping push-ups, eight power snatches, 75, 55 pounds, eight knees-to-elbows, eight sumo deadlift high pull, 75 to 55 pounds, eight handstand push-ups, eight toes-to-bar, then 800-meter run. It is, uh, again, back to... It's like practicing getting kicked in the nuts. It sucks every time. <laughs> <laughs> so should we just go ahead and go get the sand and shove yeah, it down our Yeah, ground? yeah, that'd be a yeah, little quicker. Is that, the is that now part of it? Sand. Have you seen the guys come walking up with the sand or anything yet? And uh, No, the complete different thing is now, <laughs> so you see all the young kids do it, and I know this because I did it the very first time. Like the weights are really light on the weight, and so you come out, and these are like gung-ho CrossFitters too, and back in my day, I don't really do much CrossFit anymore, but like come out just on fire. I mean, I'm just going to rock this thing. Boom, boom, boom. And I'm just like, 
you know, I look up at the clock, I'm like, all right, one round every five minutes. And, you know, I like do the thrusters and like, Hey, thanks for coming. You know, go by and shake some hands and, you know, kiss babies and such. And the other guy, he'll be like two or three rounds ahead of me. And they're like, well, I'm smoking you, Jeff, whatever. And then about round six, you just look over and they're just done. I mean, it's, it truly is. It's, it's a marathon type workout. A lot of people, they split it up, uh, do it as a partner, you know, and we tried to make it, you know, I mean, it is CrossFit, uh, but like people are like, well, when we RX it or scale it, you have all these CrossFit terms. What are you supposed to be? I'm like, I don't give a shit. Just do the workout. It's not about just do eight yeah. of something. You know, I don't care what it is. The whole theme is it's eight, uh, you know, and do it and just think about not just what these men sacrifice, but think about what this whole movement is about and how it is possible to take something bad and turn it into something good and make a meaningful and positive impact in the world. Jeff, where can they find the, the book again? I'm sure it's Amazon is definitely one location. Is there, that's the, know, best, is that the place. best place. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's on some other platforms. That's the cheapest is, is there. Yeah. And, uh, what's next for you, Jeff? Next for me is there's uh there's talk of, and we'll see, you got some things to go. You know, the book is, it's at a point of two years. It's still relative in the scheme of things. This is what other people tell me. Uh, so I've had potential talks of, People have come back and like, like we, we wanted more at the end. Like, I don't know what you thought. One of the feedbacks I've got a lot no. is like, they wanted more, like, it's like you went from all this stuff, like build up and all these tough things and it was sad and tough. And then you're going to make change. And then a chapter later, the book was over. Uh, they're like, we would love to see more expansion. And these are a lot of the people talking about the mental health side of things mm. of like, walk us through that process more. It's like, you kind of went from up to the struggle to where, all right, I'm going to make change. All right. Now the change is made. And so you think you can have an opportunity to maybe impact some others if we expand that section. Uh, and then also maybe, uh, you know, could find somebody, a, a bigger name to do the Ford on it. Uh, so I've been approached about there be an idea of you know, republishing it, going to hardback because it's, and again, I don't know enough about that world. I just know what people in that world tell me of, you know, that it's two months, two years in, the fact that it's still relative is a good thing. Now, if we can do something to really get it out there, here are some ideas we have. Mm. You know, I also... So if anybody's I, listening or you know anybody, yeah, <laughs> hook me up because I have no idea. <laughs> well, I, I almost like the idea in some ways of it not, um, but I get what they're saying because I think it's sort of like... I equate it to a radio station. I may have mentioned this uh, in the past, so forgive me for those who've heard it, but a radio station that was local here to Atlanta that initially started off and they were very, very small. And so it was just a bunch of people sitting around. They didn't honestly know what to do. They were building chemistry together and they just had good fun every morning, just talking about their personal lives and everything else. And once it evolved to a radio show that had a structured show and they had collar ends and all of that kind of stuff, it, it just, it didn't feel the same anymore. And that is my worry. Exactly that, that, you know, here and going with the smaller publisher had a little more say so, and they would come back and edits and like, mm -hmm. no, we want to keep it. You know, if, if, again, play that other scenario out, you don't, or you go and add some other content. And then I don't want to end up in the same boat as what you're just talking about with the radio show. I think it's something of incredibly proud of, you know, of what we put out there as is. Uh, but also I don't want to be naive and not at least consider there's another option to, you know, again, you, know, you can have a great story to tell, but if you don't have people to tell it to, then, uh, you know, you're really not maximizing the impact it can have. And so 
again, I don't know that we're going to do that for now. It's forums like this. And again, I'm incredibly appreciative uh, with the audience that you guys have, you know, to have a regular old army infantry captain on here sharing his story. And, uh, <laughs> sitting, <laughs> sitting with uh, ranger, you know, Mr. Ranger here. And yeah, he looked at my sniper left, extraordinary. He, he looked at my left shoulder when I came in. I saw yeah, it. Like, <laughs> a little light, little light over there. <laughs> Jeff, thanks so much for coming on, man. It's really our honor that you, you came here. Like I told Definitely. you, I was a little bit of a fan girl and uh, after reading the book and um, so appreciate appreciative of you bringing in your vulnerability to not only the show but to the book for others because um, I know for a fact that when we have these types of stories especially it does end up resonating and making an impact with somebody out there because we get the feedback about it and um, that's when it's really special mm-hmm. when you can find that one and you reach that one or you save that one and that's you know, that's when you know the book was powerful. Yeah. So thank you for coming on here and remaining vulnerable and, you know, talking about the difficult topics that are within this and your challenges and stuff with life and how you came through it. Um, I really appreciate that. Gentlemen, my honor. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it.